Greetings and welcome, all you commanders, eagles, and angels. This is Rainbird, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Tara and Rama's Hard News on Friday night on BBS Radio Station One. <sighs> so we're grateful that you join us here tonight. Let's take a few gentle breaths and set the tone for the evening, go into our heart space. So breathe gently. Long breath, easy breath, into your nose, out through your mouth, or whatever breathing protocol you like to do. And let go of that drop of the day. As we gather in our heart space with our spirit teams and our healing teams, and our ancestors, our totems, those ones we like to journey with a teamy drum with. Our occult guide this evening is the world bridger, the Kimi. We have the Kimi drum, and it's calling us. So let us gather round as we let go of that dross of the day and and go into that heart space and gather with our guides. Let us gather around this council fire. It's in the center. So come in close around that council fire in that virtual way we know how to do. And let us call in those seven galactic directions in the Mayan tradition with the Kimi drum. Welcome from the east, the house of light. May wisdom open in the dawn that is upon us so that we may see things clearly. Welcome from the north, the house of night. May wisdom mature among us so that we may see everything from within. We greet from the west, the house of transformation. May wisdom be transformed into right action so that we might accomplish what must be done. And we welcome from the south, from the south, the house of eternal sun. May right action give us the harvest so that we might enjoy the fruits of the planetary beings.
welcome from above the house of paradise, where the star people and the ancestors gather. May their blessings be just now. Greet from below the house of the earth. May the beating of the crystal planet heart bless us with its harmony so that we might end war. Welcome from the central source of the galaxy, which is everywhere at once. May everything be recognized as the light of mutual love. Ayam, Hunapku, even Maya, Imaho. Ayam, Hunapku, even Maya, Imaho. Ayam. Hunaku, even Maya, Imaho. All hail the harmony of mind and nature. In Lakash, Shavakin. I hold the talk Stay wherever that drum beat took you. Take a few moments to look at the record of days for today in the Mayan calendar and for the week ahead. So today, we are in the wave of Monique on the ninth day, which is men, the nine men. And that's the blue sore eagle. So the sore tone keywords are realizing intention and pulse. At number nine. In the eagle, men, keywords, create, mind, and vision. So here's the mantra for the day. I pulse in order to create, realizing mind. I feel the output of vision with the solar tone of intention. I am guided by the power of magic. So that guide... Today is the monkey, magic. And the analog today is our support, is the seed, con. And our challenge teacher today, the antipode, is the serpent, Chong. And today's occult uh, power is the world bridger, which is Kimi. And uh, that's what the the spiritual guide for today. So, here you go. we got work to do tonight. We get to do it with that world bridger. Do that good work. So, then on moving right on to Saturday, well, let's look at this a little closer, at this energy of men. It's a visionary aspect. It's about our commitment to service. It's about moving consciousness to source and reconnecting with all creation. As we see that big picture, we see it as one. 
So let's embrace these gifts of independence and that belief in ourselves. As we let go of any feelings of despair or dissociation and let go of that illusion of separateness. As we embrace these energies today. And then tomorrow on Saturday. It's Keeb, the warrior, and which is a warrior aspect. So we're trusting in our journey and we're bringing awareness of right action with this energy. And we have these gifts of that communication with the divine, that access to cosmic consciousness with Keeb. So let's let go of any limitation, any restriction, any hesitation as we embrace these energies on Saturday. And then moving on to Sunday, it's 11 Kaban. It's the, the the red spectral earth. That 11 tone is about letting go of what no longer serves. I'd let go of war to start with. <laughs> anyway, this is a healing aspect. So let's use that energy for Sunday. And this is our work as as earth beings is being keeper of the earth. So we have that awareness of earth energy and that a gift, that access to planetary harmony. So we are the balancing point and we use our intuition to find that common ground. And we let go of any separation, any failure to redesign or any disassociation. So there you go, Kaban energy. Earth energy on Monday. I mean Sunday, excuse me. The red spectral earth. And the on Monday is Etnam, the mirror, the warrior aspect. And it's the crystal mirror. It's the twelve tone. So it's the white crystal mirror on Monday. So this warrior aspect brings us our work with groundedness and in that wise use of honesty and self-understanding mirror so good at showing us. So let's embrace these gifts of scrying the unseen, that fluidity, that persistence of the mirror, the reflection. Let go of any illusions of separateness, let go of fear, abandonment, all illusions. With this energy on Monday, and we got that crystal tone of complex stability. So we're doing some good, solid work with that mirror on Monday. But then on Tuesday, we finish up this wave with Monique, this wave where we're, we're healing ourselves and and paying attention to that. So it's the the 13th Kowak. So it's the cosmic storm on on Tuesday, and it's also a portal day, or, or galactic activation portal day, so we've got extra dimensionality with this storm, and it's good, because it's a visionary aspect, so we have that access to higher dimensions, those visions, so it's about creating transformation for others, this storm energy, about lighting clear thoughts. So we embrace these gifts of that possibility of freedom and that power of catalyzing. So let's let go of any addiction to crisis or despair or fear or that illusion of separateness. 
as we embrace these energies on Tuesday and complete this wave with that 13 tone, the cosmic tone, that promise of transformation, transmutation. And then we begin a new wave on Wednesday at the Wanna How, the yellow magnetic sun. And so we start this new wave of the how, and this, the guidance for this way is, is to re- receive our universal connection to source. So that, that's what we're doing. We're connecting with the sun for 13 days, almost two weeks. So it's the healing aspect. And it's about rising through Christ consciousness and striving towards wholeness about transmitting energy to others. So we embrace these gifts of that possibility thinking, the gift of unconditional love, and the God cell. So let's let go of any limitation, any separation as we embrace these energies. On on uh, Wednesday of next week, and, um, and then for the next 13 days, with this energy is that wave of how. Of the sun, bring the let the sun shine in. And then on Thursday, we begin a new union as well. So it's the um the the dragon. I mean, it's a red lunar dragon. It's two Amish, and that red, it's the red dragon. So Amish is the dragon, and it's, a, it's an artist aspect. It's that first solar glyph in the wheel, and it's about working on creation and self-dependence and trusting in the universe. So we work with clarity of mind, with our intentions, how what we're going to accomplish in this union, this 20 days around the wheel. And we embrace these gifts of being that source of creation and the beginning, that beginner's mind. Let's let go of any illusions of lack of support as we embrace these energies on Thursday. Right, yeah, Thursday. And then on Friday, we come back at the three eek, or ish, the wind, the white electric wind. That three tone is the electric tone. It's active, activating the, the first two. <laughs> and... Each the wind is listening to that spirit of of the wind coming through. So it's a visionary aspect about co-creation of heaven on earth. So we work with truth in all matters and remembering our unity with spirit as we embrace these gifts, having that voice of spirit, spirit working through us. So let's let go of any judgment of others or any secretiveness as we embrace these energies on Friday. And we'll talk about it some more when we get there next week. So there you go. That's the week ahead in the Mayan record of days. And we'll be um, starting that new wave on Thursday with it, or rather Wednesday with the one of how the yellow magnetic sun. And then, um, yeah, we've got a, a portal day in there somewhere. Where was it? Oh, yeah, on Tuesday. It's the, so those two days together, Tuesday and Wednesday, are powerful that way. Tuesday is the 13 co so it's a, 
extra dimensional storm day with that cosmic tone 13. A very powerful day on Tuesday. So there you go. That's the week ahead. And um, I'd like to take a few minutes, change my hat, and talk about the housekeeping. As we are a listener-supported radio program, it's all of us that make it happen. And each week, we have these uh, services to pay for with BBS Radio, and we get a stellar deal, and they're patient with us. So we're really grateful for for BBS Radio and their patience and steadfastness and uh, keeping us going here. So with lots of gratitude to them, let's let's get paid up in a timely way. We have finished October, and we have finished February in the process. And, <laughs> and as Tara says, it felt like a month of Sundays. <laughs> and indeed nearly was, but we did it, and we are have $136 into November. So that leaves 141 for that first week in November. So we still need to pay. And then for the two weeks after that, we need to pay for three weeks in November. So that's adding another $754. That's $895 that we would like to pay this week <laughs> to BBS Radio. It'd be awesome. It's, it's a goal. Anyway, we are grateful for all of you and for you going into your heart space and seeing what is yours to give. And then here's how we do it. We go to bbsradio.com, and you see the schedule there on the homepage, and you want to look at the schedule for Radio Station 1 to find this program and, and the Thursday night program as well. So you'll see... The, the listing on the schedule for the 8 o'clock hour on Thursday is a night at the round table with the panel. And there's an icon there. As you click on that icon, that takes you directly to our account with EBS Radio, where you can make a donation in any amount using your bank card. And then on the Friday listing at the 8 o'clock hour is the hard news on Friday night with Tara and Rama. And if you click on that icon, that takes you to our account as well. And it's the same deal. Use a bank card, and you can make that donation. And then we have a program on Saturdays. It's on Radio Station 2. And and by the way, these times are in central time. So the 8 o'clock hour is central time. So adjust that towards your, to your local time as necessary. So the Saturday show is at 3.30 central. And if you look at that listing there, you'll see that icon. You click on that icon, and you can make a donation there with your bank card. So thank you, thank you, thank you for taking that action. We are so grateful. And see, what else? Uh, yeah, as you're sending something, yeah, that's that's wonderful. And as each of us can send a send something that's even more magical as there are a lot of us out here that are listening that could reach in and, and pitch in a little bit. It's pretty easy to do. So thank you for taking that action. We are so grateful. We, we welcome all the new people who are endeavoring to pay it forward like that. Watch the magic happen because it does. So we're also assisting Tara and Rama with their needs. And this week they're needing 
to pay the internet bill, which is $161.17. And then they also need a couple hundred dollars for living expenses. So there you go. There's what's needed for Tara and Rama. And here's how I make a donation to them. You want to go to the web address, which is rainbowroundtable.net. Be sure you use the .net and the .com because there's another kind of rainbow roundtable out there um, <laughs> that you find if you put the com in there. Anyway, we won't talk about that. We'll talk about Tara and Rama and how to find them. And so as you go there, you'll see a donate link on the right hand side on as you're on a computer at the top bar or if you're on another device just click on the menu grid and you'll see a menu drop down near the bottom of that list is a donate link that takes you to our paypal account for rainbow roundtable so as you go to that account you can access the friends option for making a donation as long as you have the the, uh address the email address that you need for gifting. The gifting is always done with the email address. So here it is. Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 9999 at hotmail.com. So find a spot to put that. Make sure it's going as a gift. And that way you eliminate the commercial charges. And we are all friends and family here. So we're grateful for your donations either way you do it. And we just want to make it easy for you to learn how to do it that way. <laughs> and so that works. So once you, here it is again. Koran9999 at Hotmail.com is the email you need for making a gift. And so thank you. Thank you, thank you for taking that action. As you're sending something, please let Rama know. And his contact email is Koran99939 at comcast.net and let him know what you sent and when you sent it so he knows what to expect. And then, of course, um, the email, I mean, the mailing address, as you need it, is Ram D. Berkowitz, R-A-M-D Berkowitz, B-E-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z. And that's Post Office Box 280280, and the city is Santa Cruz. The state is New Mexico. The zip is 87567. And again, Santa Cruz, New Mexico, 87567. So there you go. That's all the information you need. And I'm going to pass this talking stick <laughs> in its full stuff turkey. <laughs> and it has, so there's lots of birds and lots of feathers and um, lots of fairies and magical beasts and little people. So with gnomes and elves and and oh, and there's Sasquatches there too. And um, the Menahunis and all all the other little people. And uh, oh, yeah, and there's dragons and unicorns too, because the magic is there. May the magic happen. Greetings, Tar and Rama. Here comes this talking stick. 
Excalibur's Sword of Truth is there, as always. Thank you, Rainbird. Thank you, Rainbird. You took us on a journey again. <laughs> a Mayan journey. <laughs> An ancient Mayan return Happy journey. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. <laughs> we are so thankful and grateful to be here. We are. It is an amazing time to be alive. <laughs> In spite of all the stuff. Oh, it, uh, yes, it leaves you a bit speechless, I think, lately. It, it does. Rama found this picture that really depicts what happened Thanksgiving, and it's on our report. Uh, we replayed our Thursday, a week ago yesterday, show yes. on Thanksgiving Day, so everybody who came, who wanted to hear something, heard, I, I thought that was a wonderful show we did a week before Thanksgiving, so, uh, so anyway, and uh, some of us have been, you know, burning the candle at both ends and need a little extra rest, and, yes. you know, the, the weekend is Upon here for us. us. Um, this is this is what it's it's on the top. It's all in capital letters. Thanksgiving. Then there's a wooden table, and there are two people standing on either side, and they're sharing, holding a plate with a turkey on it, a cooked one, <laughs> with things around it like vegetables and stuff. And um, it's a Native American on one side of the table, and. This is what it says at the bottom of the picture. It says, celebrating the day Americans fed undocumented aliens from Europe. That is really what happened. And uh, the, uh, the, the, the pilgrims that came over here, they were really in trouble. They were they starving were to death. They were escaping from the king. Yes, they were. King George. Yes, but um, they didn't have the skills to know what to do to get their food from nature. Yeah. What a it's... strange world they came from. The thing is that in answer to that, uh, the not-so-nice folks came over here, and uh, there were between 160 and 200 million Native Americans living here already. And the reduction of the population is just by, oh, just by any means necessary, uh, killing, killing for stealing the land, and oh my. So I mean, we're being asked to let leave it all go. Yes. So um, that's a more. We're moving into the fifth dimension. Every single second, <laughs> I, I just have to say, because I'm experiencing it, and at the same time, watching and seeing the absolute uh, 
illogical insanity going on right now with the nonsense that's being talked about on lamestream news. Yeah, they do want their fascist state, yet the old 26,000-year cycle has come to a conclusion, and they're going to get it one way or another. Inshallah. Well, there's something going on. It's a replay now. Uh, uh, five to seven and seven to nine on MSNBC. It's called Why Is This Happening? And it's Chris Hayes and Rachel Maddow uh, discussing the fight to preserve democracy. And Rachel Maddow's latest book is called Prequel. And it's about fascism being initiated right here in the United States and being exported to Europe. Just the opposite of what people think. And a key player in that was um, Henry Ford. Hitler quoted uh, that, uh, I regard Henry Ford as my inspiration. And um, um, there's been a whole gaggle of lawyers at the University of Arkansas that are trying to say it's perfectly fine to call this a democracy and suppress people of color at the same time. That's free speech. Apartheid. And the apartheid, we're going to listen to Amy Goodman on what's been going on for a hundred years over there in the Middle East. Um, Yeah, uh, I'm just going to say there's a book that was written by a man named Professor Rashid uh, Khalidi, and he's a professor at Columbia University, and he is a Palestinian-American historian. And he wrote this book called The Hundred Years' War on Palestine. And uh, yesterday, I mean, no, uh, yeah, yesterday, um, we were talking just a little bit and, uh, uh, um, because we were writing Wednesday's report. I was too tired on Wednesday. But um, Penny found some history to back that this uh, um, hatred for the Palestinians started a good hundred years ago in the late 1800s. I just mentioned it on Wednesday night, and she started looking around, and she found all kinds of stuff. And we're going to hear a whole bunch more on Amy Goodman tonight. So uh, may peace prevail on earth. And we didn't have a show yesterday, so real quick, I'll just read what I can here. Starting last Friday, uh, that was the 17th, Lady Natasha speaking. I received a text message from Lady Natasha at 12.09 early this afternoon. She said to me, Lord Rama, I am here near Lake Baikal in the far eastern side of Siberia. And Catherine, who works for the King of Swords, uh, and Heidi, uh, 
who has worked many years, decades, for the International Bank of Settlements. They actually closed out the entire global uh, banking system in six years, from mm-hmm. 1993 until 1999, in uh, lieu of starting a gu- over again. And so 20 more years later, 23 more years later, uh, this is getting wrapped up. It really is. Um, we're going to start completely new. But um, anyway, these two ladies, Catherine, uh, who has been working for the King of Stars for many, many decades, and Heidi, who has been working that International Bank of Settlements ever since, and uh, they're also here with me, said Lady Natasha. We are here investigating ship sightings, uh, starship sightings, because the local people have reported starships coming out of the lake and then going into the upper atmosphere and into space. The local people have reported seeing all tall white ETs also coming out of the lake. There is an entrance in the lake to the inner earth, Lord Adama and the Agartha Network, and Lord Anton of the Silver Fleets are sending starships from inner earth into our skies on the surface to help with first contact and full disclosure. So see you in the light of the most radiant ones. Satnam Namaste, blaze the fire of fire. And then the Dalai Lama has a word on the uh, 20th, Monday. And he says, you are human beings. I am a human being. You want a happy life. I want a happy life. Yet I think that aim will not be fulfilled only on the basis of material values. What we all want is affection. And what we all need is to be more warm-hearted. Mm-hmm. And then on the 21st, Rama says, I received a text message from Tom the Ringtail Cat and Sweet Angelique the Cat at 11.45 a.m. this morning. They said to me, Lord Rama, there are tremendous things happening in our local sun system and our galaxy. We sent you a picture of Supergalactic Center where the Hunab Ku is located. Rama put that up there, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's a pulsating, uh, it is pulsating out tremendous waves of light. Yes, I saw that. Yes, it's in this picture. Yes, these light waves are affecting all of the galaxies surrounding Supergalactic Center, as well as ours, the Milky Way galaxy, all 27 galaxies. Uh, in other words, all together, including our Milky Way galaxies, there are 27 galaxies that focus in at Supergalactic Center. And the Hunab Ku is there too. These light waves are coming into our local sun system and our Earth's atmosphere. These light waves have encoded messages. These encoded messages are upgrading our DNA. This is part of the plan, as Kryon says to us. As we look at you, we see your magnificence. Yea, ye are the shining ones. 
and then you turn the page. Okay, our biggest, best right now is sending love and compassion. Our biggest test, there we go, right now is sending love and compassion. We know how tough the energies are for you right now. As you embrace more light, it gets easier. It is as His Holiness says, as we take the Bodhisattva vow, it is for all eternity. See you in the light of the most radiant one. Satnam. Namaste. Blaze of fire. And then on Wednesday, which was the day before yesterday, I received a text message from Tom the Ringtail Cat and Sweet Angelique the Cat at 11.53 a.m. late this morning. They said to me, Lord Rama, the solar flares are getting bigger by the day. By Saturday, we may get even a lot more solar flares. What time is it, Rama? Mm-hmm. The- 7.49. Okay, because we got seven minutes. Okay. okay, we are at the end of this story. The monoatomic gold dust is really visible right now, and we are at the end of this story. The light has won. Every day in Aurora Ray's report, she is sharing how the fifth dimension is being anchored here on Earth. The Pleiadians were the first galactic beings to come to Earth and have been here since the beginning of this grand experiment. They are remaining to explain ascension to us, always reminding us that we ascend by our own free will choice. Mm -hmm. That's really important to choose. Got to choose love. Love is always with us. Uh, Pursuing knowledge of that as the truth and uh, breathing good, good good for starters. Deep horror breathing, that will help um, raise the consciousness from within. Yes, our 12 strands of DNA are active right now. As we choose to tune into the force, we can see amazing things. Our own DNA is urging us on. This is why as you get up in the morning, you can feel the universe talking to you. There will come peace to the Middle East. Friday morning at 7 a.m. Israeli and Palestinian time, there will begin an open-ended four-day pause slash ceasefire initiated by Israeli, excuse me, Israel and Hamas. Yet Hamas is represented only by the United States deep state, Hamas being the creation of our own U.S. deep state has nothing to do with the Palestinians. These are these are mercenaries for hire, everyone, of this deep state. This is an interesting and very precarious time. As as we ask you all to stay in your high heart, Satnam, Namaste, Blaze of Violet Fire. Mm. And continue to pray peace in the Middle East. Let's keep it in present time. Um, okay, so we better play what we've got here. 
I got a little quick thing if we got time at the end this that Penny sent me. But Aurora anyway. Ray, Earth's Grand Shift and Hidden Wisdom, From Old Artifacts to New Realities. Shift Chronicles, Earth's hidden treasures and ancient secrets. Getting help from outer space hasn't been easy. Imagine stars sending knowledge to different human groups on Earth. This wisdom was like a special light meant to keep important knowledge safe for hundreds or even thousands of years. When those groups finished their time, they hid these special things on Earth. They used artifacts to tell stories like secret messengers. These things stayed hidden for a long time, only showing up when we could understand them. Earth keeps lots of old stuff from these groups, some even from what we'd call the future. Our beliefs today are influenced by many directions, not just the past. Some of the things we think are really old are actually from the future. People can cleverly make things in the future and make them look old when they show up in our time. These tricky objects can make us think certain powerful beings exist when they might not. If we can understand that the stuff we see is like symbols and not just things to collect, we'll find amazing things coming back. Our planet is going through big changes and these old artifacts with hidden knowledge will start to show up again. When these times finish, many different levels of reality will connect. This will show us the big mystery of why we exist. It will feel like Earth is suddenly getting better, even if some parts seem damaged. You might start seeing these things happen. People will feel drawn to certain places and see strange shapes appear. Maybe others won't see these artifacts because you need a special way of looking at things to really make these things part of our world. Lots of people will need to agree to bring this special energy back. This shows that we care about Earth. As we learn to love our home, we'll keep finding new secrets that make us feel amazed. Cultures from all around the world have left their marks in different ways. They've spread their vibes through languages, sounds, and objects made of stone and gold. For example, in the United States, the influence of Greek civilizations can be felt, especially on the eastern coast. Rhode Island, for instance, has a history that connects with the past of Rhodes. You'll also find names like Syracuse, Ithaca, Utica, Sparta, and Athens, which all have ancient Greek origins. These names carry the influence of the past and will make more sense as you learn and grow. In ancient times, people had certain rules they lived by. In Delphi, a place in Greece, they believed in the saying, know thyself. It meant looking inside yourself, exploring different sides of who you are finding answers, and even reaching other worlds. These rules also taught you not to overdo things, to always show respect, and to value what's around you. Today, we're encouraged to think about how we behave and communicate with others to build a world where everything matters. What makes you special is your diversity and all the different ways you've tried to understand the world. Tibetans have a deep understanding of some of the universe's secrets. There's something like a cosmic doorway in Tibet, a big opening filled with energy. Imagine if someone wants to visit your house. They could come through a window 
But it's easier through the door, right? Well, planets have their own doors, too. These doors are like pathways through time. So, when you visit a planet, how do you know which time period you'll end up in when all times exist at once? Figuring out when things happened in time takes a lot of skill. And it's not easy. Tibetans, until the 1950s, looked after this energy doorway. They've acted as protectors and messengers for those who dared to pass through. Tibetans have also been working with beings from other planets for a very long time. Once upon a time, the Himalayas, where Tibet is located, were at sea level, beneath the Tibetan mountains. There are massive veins of gold and caves filled with crystals. These caves hold ancient relics, showing how old their civilization is. Some of these relics even include preserved bodies. Tibetans had a way of preserving these bodies that was different from what the Egyptians did. Egyptians used mummification, which was like a memory from a long time ago when people could be brought back to life if their DNA was intact. Today, we're starting to rediscover and use these possibilities again. The ancient Tibetans had a unique way of looking at things. They weren't so much interested in making the body young again as they were in preserving the special way of thinking and feeling that a person had during their lifetime. They did this by mummifying the body with gold, both on the outside and the inside. It was a complicated process that took many months to finish. If someone reached a very rare level of consciousness and kept that level throughout their life, when their time on Earth was coming to an end, they received a special request. They were asked to go deep into the mighty mountains and wait for death in a specific position. When they passed away, and their spirit left their body. Special workers would start a process to protect the body. They covered it with layers of gold, which helped keep the unique way of thinking and feeling intact. This was highly valuable to them. Hundreds of these statues are hidden beneath the mountains in Tibet. Nowadays, people who know about this believe they can blend with these preserved vibes and access special ways of thinking and feeling. So, as we look to the future, Remember that a grand shift is going to happen on Earth. Our world is full of hidden treasures and ancient wisdom waiting to be discovered. Our journey is like assembling a vast puzzle, piecing together the mysteries of our existence. With each fragment we connect, we inch closer to harmonizing with the upcoming grand transformation that awaits. Keep your eyes open for the signs, the strange shapes and the hidden stories and join others in bringing back that special energy to show our love for Earth. Together, we'll continue to uncover the amazing mysteries that make our world a truly incredible place. We love you dearly. We are here with you. We are your family of light. We are the Galactic Federation. Aho! This is a message to humanity from Aurora Ray, Ambassador of the Galactic Federation. Okay, anything you want to say, Rama? Um, I've heard of folks being mummified with gold, yet I also know that we are ascending and we don't have to die. Okay, real quick, you got to give the number because it's time. I'm oh, not sure so if that 
program is on after uh, this 720-716-7301. And the PIN code is 353863-POUND. Okay, everybody. We'll see you at the conference and um, at the top of the next hour. We'll be right back here at BBS Radio, best radio in the neighborhood all over the world. Satna, see you on the conference, everyone. Namaste.
thank you for joining us for our weekly vlog. In our last vlog, the beings of light reminded us how our Father Mother God intended for the law of the circle to work during our earthly lives as we learn to become co-creators with our God parents. This week, we're going to learn how the law of the circle affects us in adverse ways once we made that fateful decision to experiment with our intelligent life force in ways that were not based in love. Remember, prior to our tragic decision to misuse our life force, our gift of life flowed forth from our heart flame on electromagnetic currents of energy qualified with positive thoughts, feelings, words, and actions. After completing its involutionary journey into the world of form, our life force began its evolutionary journey back to our heart flame, bringing with it the wonderful experiences that were co-created as a result of our positive behavior. After our life force returned to our heart flame and we experienced the blessings and the positive results of our actions, our I am presence returned that positively qualified energy back to the heart of our Father, Mother, God. That event completed the law of the circle. When we decided to experiment with our gift of life and began misqualifying the intelligent electronic light substance from our life force with thoughts, feelings, words, and actions that were not based in love, everything changed. That is because our life force can only pass through our heart flame and return to our Father, Mother, God, if it is vibrating with the same or a higher frequency of light than when we originally received it. What the company of heaven want us to clearly understand at this time is what happens to the returning electronic light from our gift of life once it has been misqualified with negative thoughts and feelings. That sacred knowledge is a vitally important part of the bigger picture, and it explains why in the world we are in the mess we are in, and why it seems as though terrible things are happening to good people. Thoughts and feelings that are not based in love include anything that does not reflect love, oneness, and reverence for all life. Just for a moment, Think about your own life and the things that you are witnessing every day in the world. How much of what you are perceiving is reflecting love, oneness, and reverence for all life. If you are like most people, probably not nearly enough. Everything we see that is in any way associated with fear, anxiety, incivility, hatred, judgment, Greed, corruption, violence, crime, poverty, the abuse of power, war, disease, meanness, disrespect, ignorance, prejudice, religious fanaticism, terrorism, or any other form of pain and suffering is a human miscreation that is not based in love. The energy associated with these human miscreations cannot return to the heart of our Father, Mother, God once it returns to the heart flame of the person who sent it forth in the first place. 
So what happens to the grossly mutated electronic light substance that our Father Mother God originally gave to us as our precious gift of life? Well, since that dense and grossly distorted intelligent electronic light cannot return to the heart of God in that form, it manifests in our everyday life experiences in painful ways that allow us to experience the results of our actions. The hope is that we will realize how self-destructive it is for us to misuse our life force and that we will learn to not do that again. Once the lesson is learned, we have the ability to invoke the violet flame of God's infinite perfection and transmute that misqualified energy back into its original perfection. Then that portion of our life force can return to the heart of our Father Mother God, thus completing its journey through the law of the circle. The problem is that when this heavy discordant energy returns to us, it is greatly amplified over what we originally sent out. Like our positive thoughts and feelings, our negative thoughts and feelings accumulate energy along the way that is vibrating at the same frequency. Like attracts like. On the involutionary journey, our misqualified current of energy enters the space of the person, place, condition, or thing we were thinking of when we sent it forth and creates whatever learning experience is appropriate in that moment. Then on the evolutionary journey back to our heart flame, our current of misqualified energy accumulates more discordant energy along the way. When we observe the horrific things that are happening in the world at this time, it is easy to see why things seem to be so out of proportion. Just look at the tons of negative and fear-based energy that is being expressed by the masses of humanity every single day. All of that energy is reverberating through the atmosphere and it is being drawn to our own electromagnetic current of negative thoughts, feelings, words, and actions. With so much pain and suffering in the world, it is truly amazing that we can even get out of bed in the morning with all of the negative energy that is returning to us. Remember, this energy is returning to us not only from this lifetime, but from hundreds of previous lifetimes we have experienced since our fall from grace. By the time this greatly amplified energy returns to us, it often manifests as all kinds of unrecognizable things. It could manifest as a car accident, a financial challenge, a dysfunctional relationship, a health problem, a family problem, or myriad other things that do not seem like they could possibly be our own miscreations. To complicate the problem even further, for eons of time, our fragmented human ego has manipulated us into believing that we are victims and that both the good and the bad things that are happening in our lives are just a coincidence and don't have anything to do with our behavior. 
this fragmented and fear-based level of our fallen consciousness knew that if we awakened and gave the power it usurped from us back to our I am presence, it would no longer be able to manipulate us through fear and anxiety. Well, guess what? That is exactly what has happened over the past several years. We are awakening and our I am presence is once again taking full dominion of our life. Our human ego is no longer in charge. That is what has brought us to this unprecedented moment in time during which we are experiencing the most intensified purging process that humanity has ever been able to withstand. Our I am presence is pushing hundreds of lifetimes worth of our returning misqualified energy to the surface to be transmuted back into light. This is enabling this precious electronic light substance to return to the heart of our Father Mother God so that it can complete the law of the circle. We are not being punished for our past transgressions and the cleansing process would not be occurring at this pace if it was going to cause more harm than good. This unique purging process is being allowed by our Father Mother God because millions of people are now awake and they remember who they are and why they are here. They know what their responsibility is for what is happening on earth at this time. And they remember that they volunteered to transmute lifetimes worth of misqualified energy back into light in what the company of heaven has referred to as the twinkling of an eye. So this week, contemplate the challenging things that are returning to you through your daily experiences in order to be healed and transmuted back into light. Ask your I am presence to help you learn the lessons involved in that returning energy. Then invoke the violet flame of God's infinite perfection to help you quickly transmute the negative energy from your past that is causing those challenging experiences. You have been training for lifetimes so that you will be able to do this and you have everything you need within you to be God victorious. Trust yourself and know that your I am presence is in charge. Next week, the company of heaven will help you to perceive the progress you are making, even though that progress may not be obvious to you at the moment. God bless you, dear one, and I wish you a powerful week of transmuting past and present negativity by invoking the violet flame. back everyone 
Merlin transmission, knowing more of your multidimensional gifted self. And as always, open body, open mind, soften, breathe, relax. And with your breath, calling light from the universe around you. into all cells of the body, the bones, blood, feeling light into the cells, allowing the cells to breathe in and drink more light. And on the out breath, a purging and releasing from all cells, all lower energies that do not serve you, sending them back to the universe, back to the light. And following that cycle of breath, more light into the core of your being, more light into the physical body, and on the out breath, a release of lower energies, lower toxic energies, including all energies that do not belong to you, back to the universe, back to the light. spirit of the highest light and resonance, your higher self, your I am presence, which is the oversoul, all angels and archangels, helpers, guides, masters of light, inner earth beings, all teams in spirit working with you star beings, star races, star councils that are positively orientated, working with you, call them now. Come be with you now, come be with you now. Call the archangels of the horizontal plane, beginning in the east, Raphael, archangel of air, archangel of the mind, the symbol, the caduceus, and the energy emerald green fire. As you focus on the symbol, calling that fire to you to hold the space, to hold the space. to the south is Michael, Archangel of the Element of Fire, of the Will. The symbol, a sword of flaming blue light. The energy electric blue fire. As you focus on that symbol, call that fire to hold the space. West is Gabriel, Archangel of Water, 
the symbol of this angel is a silver chalice and the energy diamond white fire. As you focus on the symbol, calling that fire to hold the space, to hold the space. And the fourth angel is Uriel, completing the circle on the horizontal plane. Archangel of Earth, of structure. The symbol, a golden pentacle. The energy, ruby red fire. As you focus on the symbol, calling that fire to hold the space, to hold the space. the vertical force angels, Metatron and Sanophon. Metatron brings down the Christ grid as a pillar of light, golden light down into the space. into the room, into the structure of the building, the walls, the floor, the ceiling, the door, the windows, all objects closing them off in a higher frequency light. Sealing any openings to any lower dimension. Allow that pillar to be anchored into the heart. Allowing all chakras from the heart upwards to align with the great central sun. below Sandophon, Archangel of the Crystalline Grid, calling up that energy. Up into the room, diamond white crystalline energy. body up to the hand chakras, rounding the hands into the crystalline grid.
of your energy downwards from the heart downwards pulling down six angels six energies and open Let's call the Merlin, the energy of the Merlin. A tall figure, perhaps seven foot tall, dressed in a simple dark blue robe. gray hair and gray beard calling this being now into the space being the Merlin has lived many lifetimes, some on this planet and many elsewhere. He is connected to the great white brotherhood on Sirius. connection to this being and through him any connection you have to the great white brotherhood
Merlin invokes a large circular crystal mirror of fluid light, many feet across. Around the edges of this mirror, light language begins to appear. Merlin invites you to look into this mirror. In this mirror, you're invited to see a vision of a lifetime on the earth plane, or perhaps a parallel dimension of this earth plane, where you developed a skill, a talent or gift that is now useful in this current lifetime. a gift that's artistic or healing or magical in nature. Allow the mirror to reveal to you a lifetime on the earth plane or a parallel dimension of the earth plane. ancient lifetime in the healing temples of Lemuria or Atlantis. Perhaps learning magical skills in the ancient Egyptian civilization or Tibetan or Central American. Perhaps a lifetime in some tribal culture where you learned a shamanic skill you feel you are in that lifetime now, experiencing it around you.
gather as much information in this lifetime as you can. Whether you're male, female, young, old, what are you doing in this lifetime? What is the skill, the talent or gift that needs to be brought back into this lifetime? Breathe and open. Allow yourself to go deeper into that lifetime. Eventually, Merlin calls you back. Calls you back, and the mirror begins to cloud over. The light language disappears. And you're looking just at a reflection of yourself. Perhaps you see yourself and Merlin reflected in the mirror. Merlin now offers you a symbol that represents this skill, talent or gift from this lifetime that's ready to be brought back into this current lifetime. 
that symbol could be anything from a star, a heart, an infinity sign, an ohm, a Merkaba, a crystal, a rainbow. Take the symbol and absorb it into your body. you to look into the mirror once again this time the mirror reveals a lifetime in another dimension or planetary system where you're trained in a skill talent or gift that's again useful for this current time of ascension the mirror notice becoming more fluid and alive the light language around it changing into the mirror into another lifetime in another dimension you developed a skill, talent or gift useful at this time of ascension. Allow the mirror to draw you into that lifetime. 
trust your first impressions. Allow yourself to go deeper into that lifetime. Absorbing more of the information. Noticing this lifetime, what you were doing, what you were learning, what you were gaining experience in.
and eventually Merlin calls you back from this lifetime. reflection, perhaps Merlin. And Merlin stands behind you, placing his hands on your shoulders and begins to transmit energy to you and perhaps a message to you about these two lifetimes. Open to the transmission.
And finally, Merlin gives you a symbol representing this gift or skill or talent you developed in this other lifetime. Take the symbol and absorb it in your energy field. And thank Merlin, who bows and steps away from your field. Call from Banks Christmas. Let's thank your team in spirit. Call from Who step Banks away Christmas. from your energy field. Let's thank all angels of the horizontal and vertical planes that step away and release the energy. Transmissions off to you as always with love and blessings, love and blessings. We are here again together, and we are indeed all servants of peace. Let's pray peace in the Middle East.
Eden's mother in the light. at this time for a for a draw to the light that no one can say no to of that mother <laughs> and what in the heck is going on this is the most interesting of times, and it's a bit um, up in the air. Is that what I, what we could say? What's going on, Mother? Here, great. Pass this talking stick to you. What is going on is the ascension of an entire planet and echoes out across the galaxy. This is the biggest show in town. Everybody's here to witness it. It is happening in spite of their Best efforts are wayward children to keep you down. Cannot go on much longer at all. There's still leeway, huh? Let's say it's moment here where everything is in flux as we send more love to the situations make it better and that's the key love is the answer the old system of the iron fist does not work. It's an old timeline that's run its course. I agree, Mother. Yes. Everything that's happening right now is about the ascension of the planet and her people. 
they are pushing the dark ones to keep that from happening and it's already a done deal the light has won well the light has won uh, um, needs to be out in the open about yesterday maybe (laughs) the day before holy tornado Yes. I mean, the fact, I just thought of this, you know, in the second term of Barack Obama's uh, presidency, he did something in secret. And the Faction Three White Knights told us, and we told everybody back then, but he signed the United States onto the World Court, the International Court of Justice, and he signed the United States onto the International Criminal Court. Yes. And then we tied that together with, in the order of timing back in 1949, Israel became the 49th state and the timing of that, of the United States. And then, I don't remember which was which, it was a, uh, Hawaii and then Alaska or Alaska and Hawaii. Do you remember? Mother, <laughs> don't remember. But the fact is that there's 51 states. Yes. So since Israel is a state of the United States, um, that's called checkmate, isn't it? Yes. That means that they get to arrest Netanyahu along with Joe Biden and take them to the International Court of Justice in The Hague for war crimes, collaborative war crimes against humanity. And Amy had some guests on her show, we're going to listen soon, that go all the way back to this this 100-year war uh, uh, in the Middle East there. Uh, against the Palestinian people. Not to mention that the man with the plan was Palestinian. <laughs> Which means he was a person of color as yes. well. Uh, isn't the jig up, Mother? It is. And it is about the whole the whole of the planet waking up in loving presence to send more love. Yes. Instead of these ideas of separation and division. Mm-hmm. Where do we go from here, Mother? That's a a book by Bernie Sanders, by the way. (laughs) Where we go from here is into the fifth dimension, as you can take it. It's about raising the frequency in every 
cell. 33 trillion cells plus. Mm -hmm. Give or take. Mm -hmm. Each one of those cells looks like a galaxy. As within, so without. What's up there is in here. No different. You gotta think about it in a conscious way. We're all connected. Mm -hmm. As you tune into our local systems surrounding this planet, the other planets in this solar system, 12 to 14, they all got a voice. You can hear them. Each one is unique unto itself. What we have missed in our ignorance or bliss is the fact of the matter that we got everything we need right here. How we use it is the key. It's called love. Like Patty talked about when mm -hmm. we got thoughts that are less than perfection. Ideas of control. This fiasco that's going on with this orange life form who thinks he can control the planet, can't even control his life. Are you talking about who I think you're talking about? Who else has got orange skin? Oh. It's not funny. No, it's not funny. It is about a moment in time where there is a convergence of consciousness that's coming together as we speak about the shift of the ages. Let's say he's a catalyst to a shift. So is Mr. Joe a catalyst to make you think about how to change this story. Mr. Joe Biden? A catalyst for change. You don't want to go that old path. Oh, yeah, that's right. There is a In other words, the whole country put him in, but I'm going to say what Robert Reich is teaching now. 
You know, he comes on, he does three to six minute little ditties throughout the day on free speech. And um, he's his latest one is to say that what's wrong with having ranked choice voting? This is a really important piece because then a person can list their number one candidate for president. Then you can have three, four, five people running for that role. And then and the next in line and the next line and the next in line. And then you really have a vote. In other words, if, uh, you know, Cornell West and Marianne Williamson and... Uh, Ralph Nader and <laughs> holy tornado and uh, you know a few other cuckoo Nazis. I mean, people have have more to think about. You only got two. It's always part of the empire's game. Yes. And they also Jill Stein. Yeah, but. Uh, I was just thinking of the other tough story is that uh, Hillary Clinton killed five people in the run to be president, you know, telling the truth about her and the dark side of herself. How many families I, we can't hear you, Mother. You're losing your voice. <laughs> the Retzel unit. <laughs> Mother's having a good drink. Long one. It's not whiskey. No, it's not whiskey. <laughs> Okay, now what did you say, Mother? What we said is it is a bit of a fiasco at this time because there are so many out there to have a story to tell which is about a piece of the puzzle of how we can change this planet for the better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, everybody's on a different page. As the saying goes, herding cats is a difficult choice. <laughs> we should know a little bit about that story, right, brother? Yes, we have our own herding skills. <laughs> oh, that's another subject for another day. <laughs> yeah, at the moment... <laughs> It is about who's really on the money 
in terms of the truth out there. All of them are compromised, including Marianne. Marianne Williamson? All of these folks have gotten a little bit of money from Steve Bannon, so it taints the pot. Uh, That is a very confusing thing because it doesn't seem to go together. What the heck's going on there? It is about muddying the waters to create confusion about who to trust, who to mistrust. How did Steve Bannon come up with all this money? The Mercers, the other 13 families who don't want to see ascension. No, they're too attached to the money game with the power going with it. They would like to play out their war of the world. My God, there's enough for everybody, I thought. There is. I mean, that's an arbitrary figure, the the whole story about money. I mean, you can create little pieces of paper, delineate what they're worth in an unlimited fashion. That's not the deal. The deal is how are we going to run around with each other? Are we going to wonder if somebody's going to shoot us the next time you turn your face around? Or are you going to do something about that? The energies go high. Those things are not supposed to work. What about that one, mother? We'll say that what's unfolding. We'll say what's unfolding right now. It's focused on what is being brought forth by people like Patty. Mm-hmm. The answers come from within. It is about a higher form of wisdom, how to create spiritual government. So what we had in Atlantis until things went awry, because the lower human ego got in the way. As we comprehend, we are creator gods and goddesses of the Most High. Our thoughts create physical space-time matter. That's why you learn about the mantras, the sacred sounds, the light language. As we focus on these things, it changes the vibration. Mm-hmm. As we continue to hold thoughts of negativity and hate, destruction. I don't like that guy because he's brown or he's blue or he's green and he talks funny. <laughs> Maybe he looks funny too. 
And this is the place where if you want to be part of the Intergalactic Federation of Worlds, life comes in all forms. Even the octopuses have a say in the matter. And life is prolific. It is about the story of creation in all its forms. 140,000, 144,000 times 100,000 times 100,000. That's what's happening. That hundredth monkey see monkey do. <laughs> All the, the portals are opening so everything, much. Everything is coming to the light of day, Mother. The fact that you have sacred portals all over this planet, stone structures, other forms of minerals that were shaped by our galactic families that at the right time they would activate that's happening now. As you go to Stonehenge or the other places, <coughs> you put your hand on the stones, they'll talk to you. Yeah. Even right here in this place, Garden of the Gods. Down Highway 14. Go talk to the stones. Talk to the sky. This is the original wisdom. Every part of this earth is sacred to our people. When the wisdom comes, whether it's from a snail or an ant or a Sasquatch person, better listen up. Chewbacca has a lot to say. He does, does he? Yes. <laughs> What does Chewbacca have to say, Mother? <laughs> He's a fictional character based on the Sasquatch people, the Yeti, the other names of the large people. Mm -hmm. Yet, as we all come together, we can share our wisdom. Stop all the mistrust of different species when we 
lowered our egos. Stuff got in the way. Mm-hmm. And our thoughts became such as weapons of war. That's why we're being taught right now how to lift it up. Is it possible, therefore? I'm sorry, everybody. <laughs> it's what's happening. We can go on, but we better go listen to what Amy's got to say. Mr. Yes. Coates has a lot to say about this. Tanahisi Coates and the other professor, uh, the two of them conversing with, what's her name? Don't remember. Miss Alexandra. Alexander. Michelle. Michelle Alexander. Oh, my goodness. This is the original story in the Middle East. Goes back, like we said, a hundred years. Professor Rashid Khalidi, uh, he wrote that book uh, of the Hundred Years War on Palestine. And Ta-Nehisi Coates, I mean, he's just a brilliant human being. And he, um, Between the World and Me was his uh, book. And he's, he won the National Book Award, I think, twice in a row. And then uh, we have Mal Michelle Alexander, civil rights attorney and author. The new Jim Crow was her, her statement. So, okay, Mother, thank you. Greetings. In the light of the most radiant mind. Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. Adonai, Savayot. Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. Adonai, Savayot. Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. Adonai, Savayot. Ilyahu, Ilyahu, Ilyahu. Yod hey, vod hey, yava, Adonai, asu, baragas. Namaste, mother. Rama, where'd you go? Welcome back. <laughs> mm. Oh. Hmm. <sighs> um. I was sitting in a briefing room on Soltec ship. And 
I was listening to folks talk about how intervention is unfolding, even if we're not seeing it, it is happening. There are so many folks here stepping into right here, right now, and every day more and more craft are being seen and people are waking up and as they interact with these folks love is the answer not fear, trepidation anxiety that's not what the galactic families bring when you feel a heart connection with the ships with the energies that's the real deal you can't fake that stuff and that's what they're talking about it's you know coming together in loving presence that's how this gets healed I pass the talking stick well let's pass the talking stick and uh, have a listen to these uh, there's a bit of an echo because the place that they held it was mm. was like that but I'm sure on the internet it will be okay we'll be able to understand everything yeah, better than the TV <laughs> all right From New York, this is Democracy Now! And what I felt was a tremendous weight. I felt the obvious thing that I think all of us feel that our tax dollars are effectively subsidizing apartheid, subsidizing a segregationist order, a Jim Crow regime. But I also felt that as an African-American who was reared on the fight against Jim Crow, against white supremacy, against apartheid, I, I, I felt tremendous shame. How could I not know? But we must speak. In this special broadcast, we hear the words of National Book Award-winning author ta Coates, civil rights attorney and author Michelle Alexander, Columbia professor Rashid Khalidi, and others from an event organized by the Palestine Festival of Literature in response to Israel's bombardment of Gaza. This is part of a hundred years war on Palestine. It's not a war in Palestine. It's a war to implant a settler colonial presence at the expense of an indigenous people, which is being pushed out slowly, maturely. All that and more coming up. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Today, a special broadcast. But we must speak on Palestine and the Mandates of Conscience. That was the name of a November 1st event here in New York, 
where leading writers and academics came together to speak out against Israel's bombardment of Gaza. The event was held at the Union Theological Seminary in Manhattan, but it almost didn't happen. Four other venues refused to host the gathering. Over the next hour, we'll hear the words of the acclaimed writer Tanahasi Coates, who won the National Book Award for his book Between the World and Me. He was in conversation with the Palestinian-American historian Rashid Khalidi, the Edward Said Professor of Modern Arab Studies at Columbia University. His books include The Hundred Years' War on Palestine. Their discussion was moderated by Michelle Alexander, the renowned civil rights attorney and author. We begin with Yasmin El-Rafai, author, writer, and producer of the Palestine Festival of Literature. Since 2008, Palfest has been bringing writers and artists from around the world to Palestine for a week-long festival, staging free public events in multiple cities across, across Palestine. Some of you have been our guests, participants, and advisors. As we come together in this beautiful sanctuary tonight, Churches, mosques, hospitals, and refugee camps in Gaza are being bombed by Israel. Our Palfest colleagues, friends, and partners in the West Bank are living in terror for their safety and the safety of their families. The young writers in Gaza who organized a night of poetry in the besieged strip ahead of the opening of Palfest in Ramallah last May have stopped replying to their messages. Muhammad al-Qudwa, who contributed a poem, a poem to that evening last May, is still occasionally replying to messages and posting on, on Instagram. With no food, water, or power in Gaza, and amidst constant bombardment, bombardment he, he writes that when his phone lights up, the internet feels like a miracle. Some of the writers and activists in the West Bank whose homes Palfest visited just last May and in years prior are having their photographs and addresses circulated on chat groups among armed Israeli settlers calling for their murder. Some of the publishers and editors who have worked with these writers and artists and activists are in this room today. In response to this disaster, we are holding this event as an urgent intervention by writers, scholars, and poets who have worked at the unavoidable intersection of art and politics who have thought deeply about land, segregation, colonization, history, and liberation. We thank the Union Theological Seminary for taking us in at a time when events in this city are being canceled and censored. This is the fifth space we approached to host us this evening. The difficulty is not because of availability. That was Yasmin El-Rafai of the Palestine Festival of Literature, speaking at an event at the Union Theological Seminary here in New York. It was titled, But We Must Speak on Palestine and the Mandates of Conscience. This is civil rights attorney Michelle Alexander, renowned author of the book 
the new Jim Crow, mass incarceration in the age of colorblindness. About five years ago, Alexander wrote a widely read op-ed piece for the New York Times headlined, Time to Break the Silence on Palestine. The fact that so many people are here tonight, so many from all different religions, races, genders, is itself a testament of hope. I know that so many of us are carrying a great deal of grief, fear, anger, internal conflict and despair into this room. I hope that we can breathe together now that we have arrived, exhale, open our hearts to one another and listen deeply to each other. We are here, we are many, we are not alone. On behalf of Serene Jones, the president of Union Theological Seminary, I want to welcome you to James Chapel. Serene could not join us tonight because she has a commitment in Washington, D.C., but she wishes she could be here and she extends a very warm welcome to all of you. It's no secret that many people are closing their doors to these kinds of vital conversations right now, fearful of what others might say, think, or do in response. And so I am enormously grateful that Serene said yes when I asked her if the Palestine Literary Festival could come to Union and use this sacred space. She said yes, knowing that her decision might invite criticism or rebuke, but she also knew that James Chapel has been the site of many, many difficult, courageous conversations, dialogues that are essential to our collective liberation and the creation of beloved community. In fact, it was in this very space that Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was originally scheduled to deliver his 1967 speech condemning the Vietnam War. The event was ultimately relocated to Riverside Church across the street due to the overwhelming number of people who wanted to hear what he had to say and our space limitations here. At Riverside, Dr. King stepped to the podium and said, quote, I come to this magnificent house of worship tonight because my conscience leaves me no other choice. A time comes when silence is betrayal, and that time has come for us in relation to Vietnam. Dr. King acknowledged how difficult it can be for people to speak out against their own government, especially in times of war, and that the temptations of conformity may lead us toward a paralyzed apathy. He did not deny that the issues present in Vietnam were complex with long histories and he recognized that there were ambiguities and that North Vietnam and the National Liberation Front were not paragons of virtue. But he said that he was morally obligated to speak for the suffering and helpless and outcast children of Vietnam. He said, quote, this I believe to be the privilege and the burden of all of us who deem ourselves bound by allegiances and loyalties which are broader and deeper than nationalism and which go beyond our nation's self-defined goals and positions. We are called to speak for the weak, for the voiceless, for the victims of our nation and for those it calls enemy. For no document from human hands can make these humans any less our brothers, end quote. 
He condemned the Vietnam War in unsparing terms. He decried the moral bankruptcy of a nation that does not hesitate to invest in bombs and warfare around the world, but can never seem to find the dollars to eradicate poverty at home. He called for a radical revolution of values. He said, quote, we must rapidly begin the shift from a thing-oriented society to a person-oriented society. When machines and computers, profit motives, and property rights are considered more important than people, the giant triplets of racism, extreme materialism, and material militarism are incapable of being conquered." End quote. Dr. King was condemned by virtually every major media outlet in America for taking the stand. And even within the civil rights community, many imagined that he was a traitor to the cause. And yet we now know, deep within us, we know that he was right. He is right. He is right today as he was back then about the corrupting forces of capitalism, militarism, and racism, and how they lead inexorably toward war. And he was right that our conscience must leave us no other choice. We must speak when the oppressed, the poor, the weak are under attack, when their homes are stolen or demolished, when they are forced to migrate and to live in unspeakable conditions, in open-air prisons, concentration camps perpetually as refugees under occupation, we must speak. We must speak when Jewish children are brutally killed in the name of liberation, when anti-Semitism and Islamophobia slip in through the back door of supposedly progressive spaces, when Palestinian children in refugee camps are bombed and killed, when schools and hospitals and entire neighborhoods are laid waste, we must speak when international law is treated like a naive suggestion, we must speak. Yes, it may be difficult. Yes, we will make mistakes. We are human. And yes, we may be afraid, but we must speak. Countless lives and the liberation of all of us depend on us breaking our silences. And what's required in these times, as I see it, is not only activism, in politics, but also deeply personal spiritual work. As Grace Lee Boggs once said, quote, these are the times to grow our souls. All of us have a conscience that whispers to us, sometimes in the dark. The mandates of conscience that arise within each of us arise not out of loyalty to abstract principles or doctrines, but from a place of deep knowing, a deep knowing that we owe something to each other as human beings, that we belong to each other, and that our freedom and liberation depends on one another. If I do not stand and speak up when the bombs are raining down on you, then who will speak up for me, for my loved ones, when the tables are turned? As James Baldwin wrote to Angela Davis more than 50 years ago, and she sat in a prison cell, for if they take you in the morning, they will be coming for us that night civil rights attorney and author Michelle Alexander, speaking at a November 1st event at the Union Theological Seminary here in New York, organized by the Palestine Festival of Literature. Coming up, Michelle Alexander moderates a discussion by the renowned author Tanahasi Coates and Columbia University professor Rashid Khalidi. Stay with us.
راسك نازك يا بلد نازك مسيوم This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. In this special broadcast, we're airing excerpts of a recent event organized by the Palestine Festival of Literature at the Union Theological Seminary here in New York. It featured a discussion between the acclaimed writer Tanahasi Coates and Columbia University professor Rashid Khalidi. Coates won the National Book Award for his book, Between the World and Me. His other books, We Were Eight Years in Power, The Beautiful Struggle, and the novel, The Water Dancer. Rashid Khalidi is the Edward Said Professor of Modern Arab Studies at Columbia University. His books include The Hundred Years' War on Palestine. Their conversation was moderated by the civil rights attorney and author, Michelle Alexander, who asked about personal connections to Palestine. This is Professor Rashid Khalidi. I'm honored to be here, and I'm extremely pleased that it was possible to put this together. This is the second Palestine Festival of Literature event that has been canceled and canceled again, and the heroic organizers managed to pull it together. They did the same thing in London, where I was supposed to speak last Friday. And it was canceled and canceled again. In London, they sent the anti-terrorism police to the Royal Geographic Society and told them they could not hold the event, but they held it anyway. Um, my... my my connection to Palestine is obviously a personal one. My family is from there. I have family there now. Um, my niece's family is actually in Gaza. Uh, they live in Riman, which is a neighborhood of Gaza right near the sea, or not far from the sea. They fled from their home under bombardment to the southern part of Gaza. Uh, they were being bombarded there, and so they went back to the shelter of their home. And then just two days, uh, just yesterday, um, because they were warned that the neighborhood would be bombed, they moved to the Al Shifa Hospital in Gaza, which is like all hospitals in Gaza, threatened by the Israeli. Uh, military was being bombed. So that's part of my connection. And I have family in other places there. Uh, I was there last in March. Uh, and it was obvious that the situation was on the point of exploding. Um, one has to be there to see exactly how awful occupation and dispossession and, and decades of living uh, as people have had to live. Uh, whether in refugee camps or in other parts of occupied Palestine, whether they're Palestinian citizens living as fifth-class citizens in Israel, whether they're in the Gaza Strip, whether they're in the West Bank, whether they're in Jerusalem. Um, I, I, I should say that my wish is that every single one of you uh, has a chance to go there. Um, people who have been there have found it a transformative experience. You actually cannot believe what settler colonialism is like. You cannot believe that in the 21st century, this is being done to an entire people, unless you see it. I, you can read about it, you can understand it theoretically, but you have to see it. And I, I urge those of you who have the opportunity to please try and, try and go there. Yeah, I, um, I, I want to pick up on uh, where she left off. Um, I... Uh, Went with PowerFest, Yasmin, uh, Omar, and all the organizers of the PowerFest uh, hosted me. And I was there for five days um, in occupied territories uh, in Jerusalem, and then I stayed another five days after that. 
And I had this degree of anxiety about going um, because I knew I was going to see something, um, something I couldn't quite name. And I knew because of my upbringing, because of my mother, because of my father, because of my wife, because of my son, because of my community, that after I saw the thing, I would have to come back and talk about it. Um, that there was no option in which I did not talk about it. And I, and I thought I was going to another country. But in fact, what amazed me was I actually felt that I was in the same country. But I was in a different time. I was in the time of my parents and my grandparents. I can think back to um, all of the articles I've read, all the things I've seen said about how complicated and how complex the situation is and the occupation is. I say it's complex, it's complicated. And it's made to sound as though you need a degree um, in Middle Eastern studies or some such, a PhD, to really understand what's happening. But I understood the first day. We went uh, to East Jerusalem uh, <clears throat> to try to visit in the way that uh, Muslims uh, visit to Alaska Mosque. And I, and I can remember being there and there were four IDF guards, biggest guns I'd ever seen in my life. And they checked IDs and they gave us our IDs back. And then they did nothing. They just made us wait. And we waited, and we waited, and we waited. There was no list, there was no protocol, there was no anything. They were just making us wait because they could. And somewhere in the back of my mind, I was like, I know what this is. I know exactly what this is. The second day we went to Hebron and I can remember walking down streets with a Palestinian guide and we would get to certain streets and he would say, I can't walk down this street with you. You can walk, I cannot, because I'm Palestinian. And I thought, I, I know what that is. As we drove through the occupied territories and I would look out and I would see roads that Palestinians could use and roads that only Israeli Jews could use. I said, I, I know what this is. Because I saw different colored license plates for different classes of people. I said, I, I know what this is. As I saw communities that I can only describe as, as segregated. I said, this is Chicago. It's Baltimore. It's Philadelphia. And I don't mean to center the whole world on America. We have a tendency to do that. But my lens is my lens. This is all I have. And what I felt was a tremendous Wait, I felt the obvious thing that I think all of us feel that our tax dollars are effectively subsidizing apartheid, or subsidizing a segregationist order, a Jim Crow regime. But I also felt that as an African-American who was reared on the fight against Jim Crow, against white supremacy, against apartheid, I, I, I felt tremendous shame. How could I not know? How could I not know that the only democracy in the Middle East as it builds itself is segregated? Yeah. 
How did I not know that? And and what I what I came to, Michelle, was that Israel is a democracy, the only democracy in the Middle East, in the exact same way that America is the oldest democracy in the world. <laughs> the relationship was quite clear it was it was quite clear it was palpable it was felt and um and the responsibility was clear after that yeah so let's take a step back and talk a little bit about the history um both of you have written a lot about the importance of understanding history in order to engage meaningfully with are present. Um, both of you have talked about history as ongoing processes rather than as complete, finished, and in the past. And you've written that there was no isolated event, the Nakba, that began and ended in 1948, but rather a hundred years' war on Palestine. And so I'm wondering if you could share with us what you think people need to know, need to understand about the history of Palestine in order to act in meaningful and courageous ways now. And also, what do they know, need to know about the history of Palestinian resistance, since it is so often portrayed in the media in such an ahistorical fashion as though Palestinian resistance is driven by hate um, rather than by a natural, unquenchable yearning to be free. And so share with us what we need to know in your view. Thanks, Michelle. Um, what we need to know, all of us, is more about the history. Um, what we need to know is I think summed up in the title of the book that you just mentioned. This is part of a hundred years war on Palestine. It's not a war in Palestine. It's a war to implant a settler colonial presence at the expense of an indigenous people, which is being pushed out slowly but surely. And when we say the Nakba, the disaster, we start by talking, we start by talking about what happened in 1948. But that's part of a much longer process. Can you explain what happened in 1948? I will. In 1948, 750,000 Palestinians were driven from their homes, starting months before the State of Israel was created, including 70,000 people in Jaffa, 70,000 people in Haifa, the two of the largest Arab cities in Palestine, 30,000 people in Jerusalem, all of this before Israel was even created. And then once Israel was created, once the war between Israel and the Arab states started, hundreds of thousands of more were driven out. That was not a result of war. That was part of a settler colonial process which dictates that you must eliminate, reduce, push out the indigenous population in order to replace it with settlers. That is what Israel is. Israel is a national fact, but it is also a settler colonial fact. It is a fact very similar to the facts that were created in Ireland by settlers sent over by to push the indigenous population to the west of Ireland. 
settlers brought to this country to push the indigenous population west and out of the land that white colonists wanted to settle. It's different, but it's exactly, it's different in its specifics, but it's exactly the same process. And the war is not one between equals. It is a war between a indigenous population and a externally supported, powerful uh, uh, movement rooted always in Western Europe and the United States. This is the metropole for that project. This is where that project gets its money, its guns, its vetoes in the Security Council. Without that, we wouldn't be where we are, without the Balfour Declaration, without the British, without the British and the French, without the United States. And I think it's really, really important to understand all of these facts, that it is a, it, this, uh, this has been a process which is driven by a demographic imperative to create a Jewish majority in a country which until 1948 had an overwhelming Arab majority, to create a Jewish state, which was the objective of Zionism in an overwhelmingly Arab land, you had to reduce the Arab population. And in order to do that, you had ultimately to use force. That's what the Nakba starts with, force. Uh, hundreds of thousands more are pushed out after the 1967 war. And in the interim, there's constant pressure on Palestinians to leave. Permits are revoked. Residencies are revoked. You're not allowed to enter. Uh, you're not allowed to. Uh, you're, you're not allowed to retain this citizenship or to live here. All of it designed to squeeze the population either out of the country or into smaller and smaller spaces. You can call them Area A, Area B, Area C. You can call them Bantustans. You can call them Native American reservations. It's the same thing. It's the same process. It's the same logic. It's the same racism. And the, the, I guess the last thing I'd say about about the history is that in this unequal struggle, which involves unremitting violence, uh, one of the first leaders of the Zionist movement, a man named Zeb Jabotinsky, the spiritual father of every government since Yitzhak Shamir's government, he said, he said it, we need an iron wall, we need force, or we cannot do this. Every native population resists its dispossession. That's not me, that's Jabotinsky. And he said it again and again and again. And that is what has produced Palestinian resistance, unremitting violence. You cannot have dispossession. You cannot have people's homes and property taken away without the use of violence. You cannot force 750,000 people from their homes without violence. And that is what the Palestinians have suffered in this war. And they have resisted. Sometimes they've been successful, sometimes they've been unsuccessful. Sometimes that resistance was political or not Quite frequently it was violent. Violence inevitably breeds violence. And every time the Palestinians have tried to resist nonviolently, the response was almost even almost more ferocious than violent resistance. Why? Because if boycott, divestment and sanctions or action before the International Criminal Court, or the Great March of Return in Gaza a couple of years ago, when Israeli snipers shot down hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of unarmed demonstrators. If those things can succeed, then Israel is naked in a way that it's not uh, uh, when, when, when the resistance is violent. So when you ask, why do you have violent resistance? You have violent resistance both, be, both because in order to impose 
the sepulchral reality on this people. Unremitting, unceasing violence has been applied to them. And because, uh, finally, people can only take so much. People can only take so much. And so uh, I, I, I think that in order to understand this and in order to advocate uh, effectively for this cause, it's really necessary for us to understand all of these things, to understand the legal aspects, the kind of things that Nora Arikat has written about, to understand details about the politics, the kinds of things that many other people have written about, and to understand the history. Um, this has been portrayed by a movement that is political, that is national, I'm talking about Zionism, that is economic, that is military, but is also a public relations project. It has sold a picture, what you were talking about, Tanahisi, which people have swallowed with their mother's milk. And it is necessary to deconstruct that, and the only way to do that is to know better than they do the reality of what has been happening in Palestine for more than 100 years. Tanahasi, can you? Well, you can respond to that, but also I'm especially interested in your thoughts about the history of Black solidarity with the Palestinian struggle and kind of the extent to which you think it's vital for Black people um, to be in solidarity with Palestine and the struggle to free Palestine today. Yeah, well, I'll say a couple things. I think it's really important to acknowledge something. Um, and that is that, I, you know, I'm a relative latecomer to this. Um, it, it's not something that I had a real knowledge of. I had an intuition for it. I had an awareness of the tradition. But it really was not until I went there that I had um, a tactile feeling for it. One of the things that I will probably be making amends for until the day they put me in the ground, if I'm honest, um, is in one of my most celebrated works of journalism, when I had to demonstrate tangibly how a repar uh, uh, reparations program could be done, I looked to Israel. And you know, like I think about that. And one of my golden rules about writing is that, you know, you only write after you've reported, you only write after, and I wrote without going. I wrote without going. Um, and so while there is this long tradition of solidarity, um, for me personally, there's a thing of making amends. Um, and it is terribly, ferociously important to me. Um, I think about that and I think about how gracious people were when I was over there. I think about how they took me into their homes. I think about how they fed me. And I think about how their only request was, when you go back, don't lose your voice. That was all they asked. That was all they asked. And so for me, um, I am obviously aware of the tradition. But this is like personal. You know what I mean? Like, I have some debts to pay, you know? And I think, like, it's really, really important to be, that I be clear about that. We'll return to this conversation between the acclaimed writer Ta-Nehisi Coates and Columbia University professor Rashid Khalidi in a minute. 
They were speaking at a November 1st event organized by the Palestine Festival of Literature at Union Theological Seminary here in New York. The discussion moderated by the civil rights attorney and author Michelle Alexander. Back in a minute. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As we continue to look at Israel's bombardment of Gaza, we return to a recent conversation between the acclaimed writer Tanahasi Coates and Columbia University professor Rashid Khalidi. They spoke at a November 1st event organized by the Palestine Festival of Literature at Union Theological Seminary here in New York. The discussion moderated by the civil rights attorney and author, Michelle Alexander. Well, I, I feel like I came late to my awareness as well. Um, I had heard things, um, including one time from a friend, a good friend who is not prone to hyperbole, who went to Palestine, returned and said, you know, I was active in the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa and had been to South Africa many times. He says, but what I saw in Israel and Palestine was worse than what I had seen there. And I remember filing that fact away somewhere, what he said. But imagine that the work that I was doing at home was what was most deserving of my attention. And it wasn't until the Ferguson uprisings when I began to hear that activists on the street who were facing tear gas and tanks, was, they were getting advice from Palestinians halfway across the globe, tweeting to them about how to deal um, with militaristic occupation and attacks and following um, the experience that those actors had in Ferguson, many of them went to Palestine um, and came back with stories and deep knowledge of the history. And as I began to learn more, I also came to learn that the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee <laughs> Um, was staunchly in support of the Palestinian cause, that Muhammad Ali had identified himself as strongly in support of the Palestinian cause, that there was a long tradition of, you know, black activists um, standing in solidarity with Palestinians. And um, I have to give a shout out to my sister's new book. She's a historian. She just published a book called Fear of a Black Republic. Um, 
about Haiti and the rise and the birth of black internationalism in the United States. Um, but it is that long history of black people understanding that their struggle for liberation crosses boundaries and that solidarity is necessary across those boundaries, I think is calling to us now. And um, the fact that Palestinians were supporting folks in the street of Ferguson and who also I've heard were showing their support um, for people in Flint, Michigan, giving advice about how to survive when your water shut off. And so it's encouraging to me um, to hear about that kind of international solidarity um, in this time. But let's turn to some political realities in the United States right now. Um, the United States support, as we all know, for Israel has been absolutely unwavering for decades, um, even among supposedly progressive politicians and elected officials. Um, uh, Mark Lamont Hill and Mitchell Plichnik have written an excellent book um, called Except for Palestine, The Limits of Progressive Politics. And I'd love to hear from both of you a little bit about these political realities in the United States right now. Um, we are witnessing in real time exactly how unshakable the support is for Israel as the Biden administration refuses to draw any lines in the sand or place any limitations at all on the billions of dollars of aid that we send to Israel every year, even as it commits horrific war times broadcast around the globe. Um, why is our government um, not only tolerating this, but sending billions more dollars to Israel? And before you answer, I want to note that I think a clue can be found in a speech that a young U.S. Senator named Joe Biden delivered on the Senate floor in June 1986. It's available on YouTube. He said defiantly, quote, if we look at the Middle East, I think it's about time we stop apologizing for our support for Israel. There is no apology to be made, none. It is the best $3 billion investment we make. Were there not in Israel, the United States of America would have to invent in Israel to protect our interests in the region. The United States would have to go out and invent in Israel, end quote. So what was Biden saying exactly? <laughs> what? do we need to understand about U.S. support for Israel? Hot potato, eh? I think we need to understand a bunch of things. We need to understand that there's a strategic thing there, serves American imperial interests, has always done. Um, that's why the British started this project. They did not do it for the brown eyes of the Jewish people. They did it because it was in the strategic interests of the British Empire. And that's one reason the United States does it. We do not give $3.8 billion a year plus the $10 billion that Biden's asked for additionally this year for anything to do with sentiment. It has to do with strategy. It has to do with oil. It has to do with interests, imperial interests. 
It has to do with a couple other things. It does have to do with the evangelical right. That's one of the things that moved Britain to support the Balfour Declaration, to support a Jewish national home in an almost entirely Arab country. And it's one of the things that moves American politicians, the votes, the money, the concentrated political power of the evangelical right. It has to do with money. Our politicians are whores. They're bought and sold. That needs to be said. And the bigger the bigger the donor, the more services they get. And that's part of the that's part of it. And if we ask, why is it that our media is so complicit? Well, it's partly because our media is a echo chamber for the people in power in Washington. I read the New York Times some mornings and I say the New York Pravda Times. And I read the Washington Post. I read the Washington Izvestia Post. They are like the Soviet press during the Cold War. They are, whether it's the Ukraine war or whether it's this war, they echo power. But they also echo money. Who owns the Washington Post? Jeff Bezos. Who owns MSNBC? NBC, MSNBC, NBC Universal. Who owns those institutions, those institutions of the press? The same people who own the politicians. The same people who own our universities. Who runs our universities? Who runs our universities? Not the presidents and the deans and the department chairmen, chairmen and women. It's the board of trustees. What is the board of trustees? It's the same people who finance the politicians, same people who own the media. So if we see a compliant media with a government that is supportive of Israel because of votes, because of the evangelical right, because of imperial uh, uh, strategic objectives, it's very simple. When we see university administrations kowtowing to one narrative on Palestine, as they have done right across the country, it's for the same reason that our media does it and the same reason that our government does it. It's money, it's power. It's very, very, very simple. Um, I, I, I can give you a more sophisticated explanation, but I think that that really sums it up, frankly. I don't, I don't have a better answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it's interesting because I reflect on the fact that... Today- Can I say something? I, I, I hope I did not insult uh, 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 sex workers. I, I did not mean to do that. I did not mean to do that. I'm very sorry. They're far, they're far above politicians. Sorry. <laughs> well, I think we should probably spend a minute talking about censorship. Um, fear and censorship. Um, I know that both of you have significant experience with censorship, having your work censored, I do too. Um, And we have seen in recent years um, the censorship of books labeled critical race theory, 
which turned out to be a very broad category. Um, books about LGBTQ um, people and issues. Um, kind of the scope of censorship keeps broadening. Um, but we are seeing now kind of new forms or very old forms of being born again of censorship in this kind of war context. And um, I do worry about the possibility of us entering into another McCarthyite era, the challenges of finding a site just for this conversation. Um, I think speak the real risk of that. And I wonder if both of you, um, and I'll start with you, say a little bit about where you think we are right now in terms of censorship. And as was mentioned earlier, people have real fears, fears that are grounded, um, you know, in reality, the possibility of losing jobs, of retaliation, and even being attacked violently um, or killed as a result of expressing their views. Um, where are we now in terms of censorship? What do you fear? And how do you think people ought to respond in this moment in time? You know, oddly enough, I think we're in a great place. <laughs> um, and I, I, I don't say that blithely. I say that, um, as you mentioned, having some very, very direct experience um, with my own work being banned in schools and libraries. And then this week, um, helping where I could, um, and ultimately, you know, it was you, Michelle, but trying to, you know, figure out where we could hold this event, seeing, you know, Yasmin go through all of the, you know, hoops. So what I've gleaned from that is when people start resorting to instruments as blunt and direct as book bans or uh, not allowing discussions, uh, they're threatened. Um, it, it's the weapon of a, of a weak and a decaying order. Um, now, I'll just say a little I never forget, I came back, right? I come back from Palestine, it's like, um, you know, late May, and I'm, I'm going crazy. Like, I'm going to sleep, and I'm, you know, dreaming about Palestine, and I'm, you know, waking up, and I got that glassy-eyed look in, in, in my face, and my wife is worried about me, and everybody's worried about me. And I, I, I emailed a friend, um, and I said, um, do you have a, a contact uh, with uh, uh, Rashid Khalidi at all? And he said, yeah, I do. And he connected us, and I wrote him, I said, man, you don't know me from Adam, but I had to talk to somebody about what I saw. And he said, it's okay. He said, look, I'm having a dinner this weekend. Why don't you and your wife come? And I, and I came, and we sat in community, and it was the thing that I needed. And among the many things that she said that night, he said, I have been fighting this fight for a long time, and I've never seen outside this strong. I've never seen the students of the university so galvanized. I've never... And, <laughs> the, the, you can confuse the ferociousness of the pushback with strength. 
You know what I mean? But but the fact of the matter is, in African-American history, for instance, uh, here in our struggle, um, the struggle is the most violent when people are the most threatened. The original uh, uh, and the oldest and the most lethal uh, form of, of domestic terrorism was pioneered uh, after the Civil War. And what it was was in response to the fact that suddenly you had multiple states throughout this country with black majorities. You had a majority black legislature in South Carolina. The pushback had to be ferocious. It had to be violent. It needed to be because of the sheer strength of the threat. That's generally been our history. And so now in this moment, when I look out and I see, you know, not just my work band, um, but I see the work of my colleagues band. I see, as you mentioned, LGBTQ uh, authors band. When I situate myself within the history of, of, of black writing, and I understand the fact that there was never any safe moment for black writing in this country's history. When I understand that when Frederick Douglass publishes his narrative and he goes and he talks about it, he has a price on it. He can be dragged back into slavery at any moment. When I understand that Ida B. Wells was driven out of Memphis, Tennessee for reporting on the lynching and the murder of her friends and, and she continued to report on it nonetheless. When I understand that Elijah Lovejoy was, was shot to death and his press was shoved in, into the river. You have to be um, realistic about this moment. What happened to you, man? You had to find another location for your talk tonight. That was it. Actually quite simple compared to the long history of things. My wife uh, was kind enough um, to send me an article about uh, this district where they had banned between the world and me, right? And it'd been, and this is a deep red district. And there'd been this whole fight about it. And they went and they interviewed the library. And the librarian said, this is the most checked out book we've ever had. It's <laughs> <laughs> not because of me, that's because of the band. You understand what I'm saying? And, and so like the very fact that you guys are here, the very unfortunate fact that some of you who are watching us couldn't get in. You know what I mean? The fact that we had to struggle to find a venue for this event doesn't say anything about the strength of this movement here. It doesn't say anything about our strength. It says a lot about the threat and what people feel and the weakness. So, I don't know. I, I like... <laughs> Anybody that knows me knows that I am not one known for my optimism. <laughs> but, but I feel it in this moment. I, I really do. I mean, I, I don't have much to say <laughs> after that. Um, but I, I, I'm completely convinced that Tanisi's right. The, the first thing is this idea that the international community supports what Israel is doing acts as if the United States, Western Europe, and a few white settler colonies in Japan are the international community. They aren't. They're a pimple on the backside of humanity. The international community is India and China, Bangladesh, Indonesia, Pakistan, Congo, Nigeria, Brazil. I could go on. Those are the people who voted in the United Nations for a ceasefire. 120 countries. There were 14. There were 14 that voted against. Six island nations, 
United States, Israel, and a bunch of hangers on. That's not the world. The world is actually with us. Indeed, in this country, the press, no. The politicians, no. The universities, certainly no. And by that, I mean the administrations. But look at the campus that I, I teach on. Five years ago, Columbia students voted overwhelmingly in support of boycott, divestment, and sanctions of companies that support the occupation. Overwhelmingly. Same thing happened at Brown. Same thing happened at Barnard. Same thing happened at Michigan. Same thing happened at almost every university where the thing was put to a vote. The students are with us. By a vote, we know that. Uh, I was on the television the other day for my sins. Terrible thing to go on television. I promise you, don't do it if you don't have to. And I, I mentioned that young people are with us. And the, God bless her, the interviewer said to me, yeah, there's a poll here that says on Biden's handling of the Gaza situation in the age group from 18 to 35, he has 10 percent support. 10 percent. I could give you I could give you I could give you more polls. They are terrified of us. That's why that's why we're getting censorship. We've got to close now. And. Um, you know, I think as we sit here as in the center of the most powerful empire in the world, <laughs> um, we need to think about what our responsibility is, as King said in speech, to those who have been defined as our enemy and Consider not just like what we must say, but what we must do. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm wondering if you have thoughts that you want to share. I do. Thank you. Um, one of the things that I argue in this book that you mentioned is this is not a war on the Palestinians waged by the Zionist movement or Israel alone. It's a war waged on the Palestinian people by Israel and the United States. Mm. Those are our weapons. Mm. Those are American F-35s, American F-15s, American F-16s, American 175-millimeter guns, American 155-millimeter guns. They fire shells of 100 pounds each. I could tell you their kill radius. I could tell you how large the diameter of a 2,000-pound bomb dropped from an American plane is. That's us, our tax dollars, our votes. We must oppose with action, with words, not just weapons that we send to Israel to kill people with being used in that way. And incidentally, in violation of U.S. law, U.S. law mandates that weapons can only be used for defensive purposes. Why do you think they keep saying in every one of their statements that Israel has a right to defend itself, because otherwise they would be in violation of U.S. law in sending those weapons to Israel. If killing children in Jabalia camp is a defensive purpose, then it's legal. And if it's not, they're in violation of the law. We must oppose that, and we must oppose the possibility of the United States being complicit in ethnic cleansing. 
we must oppose it as strongly as we can. Otherwise, we are the ethnic cleansers and we are the killers. We may not be the ones pulling the trigger. We may not be the people forcing people out into Egypt or into Jordan, but we are responsible. Our government has just said that it's willing to fund that. Now, maybe they'll pull back on it, but they'll only pull back on it if we make them stop. Thank you. That was Columbia University professor Rashid Khalidi in conversation with the acclaimed writer ta Coates at a November 1st event organized by the Palestine Festival of Literature at Union Theological Seminary here in New York. The discussion was moderated by the civil rights attorney and author Michelle Alexander. Democracy Now! is produced with Mike Burke, Renee Feltz, Dina Guzder, Messiah Rhodes, Nermeen Sheikh, Maria Terasena, Tammy Warrenoff, Tarina Nadura, Sam Alkoff, Tamari Astudio, John Hamilton, Robbie Karen, Hani Masood, and Sanji Lopez. Our executive director is Julie Crosby. Special thanks to Becca Staley, John Randolph, Paul Powell, Mike DiFilippo, Miguel Nagara, Hugh Grant, Dennis Moynihan, David Poo, Dennis McCormick, Matt Ely, and Emily Anderson. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, my God. I think that we have been nailed for international war crimes. Compliments of our tax dollars, everyone. Mm -hmm. And we're going to do this with unconditional divine neutrality and love in spirit of all of this okay so this is going to be fun this last one mm. it's called the queen's secret son it was the 17th earl of mm. oxford was the 17th earl of oxford a collaborator of francis bacon just to remind everybody sir francis bacon was the son of Queen Elizabeth I. Yes. And so Raoul won't tell me he listened to this, but it's featuring Alan Green. Mm. And we did a series of ten of his uh, his uh, Shakespearean decoded uh, stories earlier this year. So he's back. <laughs> was the dark secret of the Virgin Queen's heir and Elizabeth she wasn't a virgin but there's a reason for this what's the name of that card game oh old maid old maid right <laughs> that's where that came from the so called virgin queen oh, anyway man. so um, host of guys Shakespeare Dakota Alan Green joins Regina Meredith to expand on the mysterious royal lineage of the band. Green draws upon evidence from anagrams and cryptography to speculate that the 17th Earl of Oxford was the son and lover of England's Elizabeth I. Here Green's theory that Shakespeare's works were scripture 
written by an enlightened being, that's for sure. Man's name is St. Germain, Sir Francis Bacon, who may have fathered an heir to the throne with his own mother, was the 17th Earl of Oxford a collaborator of Sir Francis Bacon's? What can Green's life mission reveal about the, the Bard's true identity? All right, we're just going to scratch our heads for a while, but we'll get this one, and then Rama says it's, it's good. It's good. <laughs> all right, it's all good. Here mm-hmm. we go. I was used to going, look at me, look at me, look at me, tap dance, and now it was all, oh no, don't look at me, don't express your mm-hmm. ego, ego is Latin for I am, that's all it is. I had never had the least bit of interest in Shakespeare my whole life. God, it, she led me to it, and I realized, oh, oh my God, this is the biggest story ever. Why would he do this? Why would he leave codes that I somehow have a knack for finding? He's 007, for God's sake. Yes. Ian Fleming knew this and yes. built James Bond on He hides on the surface of the poetry. It's pointing to the Great Pyramid of Giza, for God's sake. What's that doing, you know? He's telling you history's a lot more mysterious than you think. To be or, or not, not to be. What does it mean? It's the most well-known line in all the literature, and he's really saying... One of the more intriguing stories of modern history is the mystery of Shakespeare's true identity. In today's show, we're going to romp through some pretty juicy characters, but it was the anagrams and cryptographs that help our author and our show today identify the little-known historical characters as Shakespeare with a good degree of confidence because you can see you're a seer. (laughs) <laughs> and, and you have help. And that actually parallels some of the characters of the day. So I just want to say, as I was reading your book, Shakespeare Decoded, and you have that series here on Gaia too, Shakespeare Decoded, I kept thinking, he has this in him already. That's why you're able to see things and decode and have things come to you the way you do, that you were already so well developed and just primed to bring this message through again. That's my big fat opinion. So all right. <laughs> welcome. <laughs> welcome. So I think it's of you. So first of all, I wanted to set the context for your book because you do this beautiful work having to do with anagrams and pictographs, weaving the story of the day of Shakespeare's peers mm-hmm. of the day, royalty, religion and everything. Yeah. And so I wanted to find out who you are first, a little bit about your background. You're a creative for what? I am. I've been a musician my whole life, pianist. Yes. Composer, singer, been involved in the music industry and really the heart of the music industry for quite a long time at first. So I was on well, five record labels. I was musical director for Davy Jones of yes. the Monkeys Pop Group, you know, in and out of those sort of circles doing what I thought I wanted as a kid. Right. Right. I wanted to be the next Beatles, but you weren't mature enough to do what you're doing now. But you knew how to manifest. But the point about it is, you know, you get into that Hollywood and the music business. I just actually, once I was in it, I couldn't stand it. I didn't want to be in it because of all the lies, all the the fakeness of it. So, I mean, I I, I wound my way through there 
But I learned a tremendous amount. And well, you learned your, how to manifest and connect and bring things to fruition. I was able to do that in a, in a rather extraordinary way that was just I had a memory of a, of a natural system for manifesting, which which served me well mm-hmm. until it didn't anymore. And mm-hmm. the turning point for that is if you think you're the one doing it, I'm thinking I can manifest this. Oh, I've got a record deal. I can manifest this. I can. I see myself being signed by Clive Davis of Arista. Got it. Boom. And it went over and over. And I kept thinking, oh, I can do anything. And then one day the voice came. A humbling you know, voice. That voice. Yeah. <laughs> humbling is a good word. Literally, we know it if we've experienced it. Silent, compelling, loving, inside. And all it said, well, at first was, Alan, when you're at a piano playing t- for 10 of your friends, a new song, and they're all adoring you, and one person isn't paying attention, you Oops. get really upset, don't you? Busted. Yeah. I went, well, oh, yeah, I, yeah, you know, pearls before swine. That was me. Yeah. And the voice just said, I'm driving at the time, and says, I'm playing this song all the time. And hardly anyone's paying attention. Wow, how beautiful. And I was thrown into bliss, mm-hmm. into unity consciousness, something I'd never experienced before. I was literally thrown into it. I could see the sap in the trees. I could see the stars in the daylight sky. I'm looking at the electrons in the steering wheel. And I'm in utter, utter staring bliss. What do you want? You know, what do you want? Mm-hmm. Oh, you know what I want? I want a new record deal. Ask me. You've never asked me. You think you're doing it all with this manifest, manifest. So it was beautiful. It changed my life completely. And the state lasted for four months. I was completely in this bliss for four months. All my friends thought I was on acid all the time. Mm-hmm. And I'm going, give me what you got, bud. Yeah. And I'm going, I don't have anything. I wish I could give it you. But I was there. Yes. And then it and then it gradually faded away because it was grace. It was grace right. to show me that exists. Now go find it. I went and found it in meditation. And I've been doing that meditation ever since, a form of yoga for 42 years, where I can, well, you know, you can go into bliss. Right. And you, you, yes. and you know that it's your innate nature. Right. But what I had to learn from it was, yeah, do it for the right reason and do it honoring the divine because you are, it is in you. But and it is, and I it's in everyone. Yes. But at the same time, there are some people mm. that, perhaps have the messages a little louder and clearer because they have a particular mission or purpose to do. And you needed to be put into a position where you knew there was more to mind than your mind, where you needed to be prepared for what was going to happen and to listen Yeah, because you were going to be shown a lot. Yeah, And it was time and it's time. The people that I interview, Mm. I start seeing patterns emerge Mm. in the types of stories coming because they actually start validating each other that the time has come for these ancient, ancient messages, which have they tried to emerge in the day of Shakespeare. Yes. And now they're trying to emerge again in the same characters, mm. in my opinion, keep coming back and try it from another angle to move the information forward for sure. humanity. Yeah. So now let's get to 19 years ago. You've been prepped and you're visiting. Well, as you know, Regina, what happens to a lot of us when we get on a so-called spiritual path, I mean, we're all on a spiritual path, we just don't know it, but when we get on one, we go, oh, this is my path, mm-hmm. right? You can easily, and I did, get locked into this idea of, oh, no, I must be so humble, 
I should be in a cave meditating. And mm-hmm. Don't express your mm-hmm. ego. Ego. Ego is Latin for I am. That's all it is. That's Come on. it. It's just you. I am. But there's a perilous balance, right? I, I was using it before to get all this stuff for me. Out of balance desire. Out of balance, sure. Mm-hmm. And then... All of a sudden, you're thrown into the, no, I must. So, you know, I was used to going, look at me, look at me, look at me, tap dance. And now it was all, oh, no, don't look at me, don't look at me, because that's wrong. And I had to finally come back into a complete balance between those two, because, of course, there's nothing wrong with the uh, (laughs) ego, the main, the big ego of you. We're all the divine, and we're here to but Say this, that and waken it in others. And that is possible. the classic path people go through yeah. for the most part, is yeah. you go through, oh, I'm nothing but a drop in the ocean of consciousness. And mm. yeah, we all go through it. Okay. Mm. So Same. now you found your way back to your own mm. true identity because we're each here for purpose. Yeah. So you have to stand in you. Mm. Now, what happened? Well, so at that, that point, I was praying heavily to the divine saying, you can take me. I'm, I'm done. I, I've done what I wanted to do here. and Take me. My daughter's up and running. She's at New York University. Tish, I'm fine. You can take me. I don't even like it here. <laughs> you're said, in but, sayonara. <laughs> but, I, but I was really forcing God yeah. to say, show me what's next or, or get rid of me because I, I yeah. you don't want to just hang around. But if, yeah. it, if I'm here for something, which mm-hmm. I suspect I am, mm-hmm. got to show me what it is. Two weeks later, a friend invites me to a Shakespeare show. I had never had the least bit of interest in Shakespeare my whole life. That was a part of the programming as well. Oh, Shakespeare, bad. That happened earlier. But you're English, aren't you? I am English. And you didn't have any interest in Shakespeare? I did not have any interest. And we could Mm -hmm. go there, but that was going to be another show. I I was blocked from knowing it, which meant I didn't have to unlearn all the rubbish. I understand. So he introduced me to it. God, it, she led me to it. And I realized, oh, oh, my God, this is it. Biggest story ever. The guy left no paper trail. There are no manuscripts, no plays, no poems, not a letter, not a line in his own hand. No one even saw him as a mystery. Oh, I'll write this as a musical. And I'm off and running going, oh, that's what I came here for. And I'm writing it as a musical for two years. But then I found I was finding real codes, I mean, real codes. And of course, the musical then seemed a little trivial compared to this main story that, oh, he's trying to lead us to something that is really important. Why would he do this? Why would he leave codes that I somehow have a knack for finding? And there you are. But they are deep. They go deep. Yes. And so this character called William Shakespeare is essentially... We're all, we're going to go with your story, no other story. And your story, part of your story was also exemplified and what was demonstrated in the film Anonymous, which was done by mm-hmm. Roland Emmerich in right. 2011, mm-hmm. which is a beautiful film. You can tell he poured himself in because he was mm-hmm. as intrigued as you. You've taken it further. But nonetheless, it gets some, if anyone wants to watch it, it gives you some really rich kind it's, of emotional background. It's a good backdrop. primer and it's a well-told story. Yes, yes and I want, I want us to tell Essentially, mm. that and more. And so let's go to what intrigued Roland and what intrigued you and go back to the day itself, the characters of the day, and let's make the central figure really Queen Elizabeth the first. Mm. Well, of course, you had that, that, that reign of who has often been thought of as England's greatest monarch and most powerful woman. I mean, she really wasn't. She had a definite intention to show the world how powerful she was. You know, grew up in a completely dysfunctional family, right? Yeah, well, of course. Her dad 
executed her mother when mm-hmm. she was two. There is that. Mm-hmm, um, that. <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> I mean, there was swarming around her all these in, intima, intimations of, of incest, right? Oh, that marriage was not legitimate because it was incestuous. This is not legitimate because it's incestuous. In other words, you, royal stuff. Exactly. <laughs> Just your typical everyday story at Buckingham Palace. <laughs> <laughs> right. So here but, you have this this beautiful, passionate <laughs> character who was was Queen Elizabeth literate herself. She certainly seemed to historically appreciate words and history, and she de- had a lot of depth. Oh, tremendously intelligent and well tutored, and every. I mean, she could really, uh, you know talk the hind leg off a horse as you say in England, mm-hmm. anyone around her. She knew stuff. But, I mean, think of this. She she translated a work when she was 11 years old called The Mirror of the Sinful Soul. It was given to her by, by French Queen Marguerite Navarre about incest. Interesting. And she translated it from French into English. And at it's age a 11. At age 11. So and part of the principle brilliant. behind it is that if we are brothers and sisters in Christ, and but Christ is also my husband, and I am, as reigning monarch, I am the mother of, I mean, it's all a convoluted thing where she she's able to rationalize. Her In, incest is just nothing really. I mean, we're all basically only come from the one, how can there really be true incestuous behavior, which figures later in her life oh, when yes, she's rationalizing can. how she can be the virgin queen? Yes. And yet. And yet. And we're going to get into the <laughs> and yet because that's really the story. That's a big part of the story is what happens from the and yet. Mm-hmm. And so here you have this lovely woman, this brilliant woman, powerful woman. And uh, she ultimately, um, we'll get to her backstory a little bit, but ultimately she marries off to William Cecil. Or they're her no, advisor. No, no, no. Cecil is her advisor. Is her, her confidant, advisor. Confidant. But it's Cecil's daughter, daughter. who he insists right. he marry to right. his ward of court. Yes, because she's the virgin queen. Right. Yeah. So mm. Cecil comes in and he, fan- mm. he, hand- he is like a handler in her life. So yeah. what's going on with the politics of the day that, First of all, cryptography, anagrams, and everything flourished. We're not even even to the Mm -hmm. theater yet. But why did all of this flourish in the day? No Netflix. Okay, well, there you go. (laughs) No, there was more to that. No Netflix, no theater, no, well, a theater. That's all I had. They had church and the theater. That was their entertainment. And so let's talk about why secrecy, though, because mm. there were messages that were trying to come out. I'm sure. Yeah, so let's talk. Well, of course, we're in the middle of the Reformation. Right. We've been Catholic, 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 Catholic. Right. Catholic, Henry wants to marry someone else. He wants to marry Anne Boleyn. Pope won't let him. Okay, then. We're not Catholic anymore. We right. are now, you know, Protestant. Yeah. And then he dies and Mary's on the throne and she's a staunch Catholic again, right? right. Ahead of Elizabeth. Yes. And then, then Edward the Sixth is, and she dies of probably cancer. And now Edward the Sixth is on and now we're... Protestant again. So nobody knew what to do with their beats. They're going, do we do we, do we, do we, do we, do we not? Right? Well, then what's happening? So then we have the story up north. Mm. Okay. So the Scot- uh, Scotland, because King James starts coming into it. So what's going on in terms of religion between Elizabeth and James? Well, let's just say overall, yeah. I mean, Elizabeth had to very reluctantly 
uh, execute James's mother, right, Mary Queen of Scots. Mary Queen of Scots, yes. All of that mishmash is really to do with the idea that England is now, because of her father, is now Protestant. No, it's Catholic. Now it's Protestant again. Elizabeth is a Protestant queen again, but she's got to try and balance and placate the, the, the Catholics who are at least 50% of the country. And so, and there's death threats on her all the time. And so sending codes to protect or even to try to assassinate her, right. codes were everywhere. This was not a, a vague, uh, you know, thing. They were that a necessary part of communication. Part because it was a very, very tight um, s- system of control uh, the Elizabethan era, right? It was just, printing was just coming into its own. Um, they had to have control of finding out who was, who's on their side, who's not. Yeah. And she was constantly under threat. So the idea of codes is not at all, you know, everybody was doing it. Mm-hmm. And you could not say a word against the, the monarchy. Um, people would, would get obviously hung, drawn and quartered for saying, mm-hmm. suggesting anything about who she should marry. Mm-hmm. They all wanted her to marry. Mm-hmm. And she was absolutely insistent mm-hmm. on growing up in that completely dysfunctional family. She said famously, there would be one master in this house, on me. Right. You know, she wasn't, wasn't going to get married. But of course, she's a woman with natural, Passion. healthy, yeah. sexual and amorous instincts. And right. she happens to fall in love with this dashing, young, beautiful guy who comes to court, 21 years old, Edward de Vere. He's a great poet. He's a flashy dancer. We know Elizabeth liked dancing. He's also a great athlete. And how old was she day. at the time? She was 17 years older than him. Yes. And this comes up later. She was, so she was a little older, beautiful, oh, yeah. and she meets this essentially polymath, this amazing man. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> he can match her intellect. And yeah. so that for her, this is something just to find a person who is as, as educated, as clever, as beautiful a mind as she. Yeah. And so he's a little younger. He's 21, right? You said 21 at the time. Well, He'd he'd have been twenty. Well, here's the point. He was his father was got rid of, shall we say, so that he became the seventeenth Earl of Oxford. Mm-hmm. His father was the sixteenth Earl of Oxford, owned vast swaths of land. Let's get rid of him. Let's get this guy close to court under the ward of William Cecil, so that Cecil right. is now training him and educating him in the and, best libraries, yes. better than anything in Europe. Just the place you'd need in order to become a great. Writer, right. so, I mean, right. he's literally got the world at his feet, but he's but he's trapped in that 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 household until he's twenty one, and William Cecil wants him to marry his daughter Anne, right? Because that will make him connected to the backstory to all of this. Yeah, is, is, that's the tricky part. Yeah. So let's go to Elizabeth at age 14. She's written this document you spoke about, mm. about divinity, and we're all brothers, we're all sisters, mm. and it kind of puts a different um, lens around incest. Now she's 14 years old, which is actually pretty, pa- I remember me at 14, pretty passionate age. <laughs> <laughs> sure. So let's yeah. talk about what was going on then in her life. Well, she was Place uh, now Henry VIII has died, so the widow of Henry VIII marries Thomas Seymour, a dashing Lord Admiral, but he's a bit of a scoundrel. And Elizabeth has been placed in their household, and the the housekeepers make a note of, and it's just very ex- very specific in their expressions, inappropriate bedroom play with Thomas Seymour and the young princess. 
and it goes on for a long time and eventually he's he's brought up on charges of treason 33 charges of treason including trying to impregnate elizabeth in order to then convince her to marry him so that he can be king pretty convoluted path to power but that's what he thought Mm -hmm. and he got busted and he got executed for it but but there is a rumor that he did impregnate him now on the surface of it historically it's only a rumor you can find documents that books that say yeah oh yeah that happened i never liked to talk about it conclusively until i found codes that that were just too undeniable code after code after code after code going yes that's what happened. He's telling us he was the first child of Elizabeth raped at 14 years old, put into a what we would call a changeling situation. He's a changeling child put into the home of the 16th Earl of Oxford, his father. 16th so now, Earl of Oxford, yes. So now they get rid of the 16th Earl. He literally died a month after making out his will very, very prominently to William Cecil. And he's only died, just dropped dead. He, he just happened to drop dead. Now we have this 17th Earl so of now Oxford. So the 17th is now brought into town with 120 horsemen in, dressed in black. The town must have thought, who's this coming into town? Protected. Big procession. Who is he? He's just 17th Earl of Oxford. He's a kid, 12 years old. But he ends up at Cecil's and now he's there. Now Cecil can bleed all the, the grounds from, from, from the 16th Earl. They can bring all that into their treasury. But he's in place and he's close to the Queen and one assumes, if one finds critical evidence, which I claim I have in terms of the codes, because it's not just one code where you say, oh, Alan, that's your opinion. Coincidence, yeah. Five, six, seven of them all mm-hmm. saying, yes, that's what happened. So, so we're now there. talking about the 17th Earl of Oxford, yeah. none other than Edward de Edward de This is where it gets complicated. It almost makes me, I don't know why, a little teary for some reason. The whole thing is so convoluted. Mm. So she now... Mm is 37 and meets a 21-year-old Edward de Vere. Yeah. Did she know what happened to the changeling, where he went? Who raised him? Did she know his identity? We, we don't, don't know. We don't know. It would be remiss of, you know. A bit we don't know. Much. I don't know. I we don't say. know. So, I but like it's, yeah, yeah, okay. So we don't know if she knew that Edward mm-hmm. de Vere but she certainly appears to have him. been her son. <laughs> But she did have a lot of resonance with him when they met. They hit it off. And, uh, hit and, it off. and uh, all, the, all the, the Spanish ambassadors there at court were writing back to Spain. Oh, Queen de Vere having, you know, they were, all of that's been expunged from the English records, of course. Right. Oh, no, she's a virgin queen. Right. But it's in other records that say, no, that they were having an affair, quite definitely. Mm-hmm. Plus, then we know that in 1572 and 73, they had three separate private interviews with the Archbishop of Canterbury. Mm-hmm. For what reason? I mean, the only the only conceivable fun reason would be if, if a child is on the way, because they the only person allowed to marry the monarch is the Archbishop of Canterbury. They have these meetings in private, they're referenced, but no one else was there. And one can assume that that was in order to officially marry them so that right. when the child came, the child was legitimate and she could name that child some future point as being successor and the Tudor lineage could continue. William Cecil argued heavily against this when she declared that she was in love with De Vere, right? Didn't he try that's to That's a dis- little literal license on, beh- on behalf of the movie Anonymous. I, it is. That's not accurate. Sure. We don't know for sure. We don't know if he tried to discourage her from it. But something mm-hmm. happened that seemed to have put distance between them. Well, there was some distance because apparently from this affair, she was impregnated. 
apparently. I mean, that's what the story is, the story we're talking about. Mm. And she apparently took a little time off, went away for a while until the child mm-hmm. came into the world. They would do these things called progress. Yes, yes, Mom, progress. Go on progress. And go on progress. very large hoop skirts. Yes, yes, you can wave. Tell. Yes. Right, and they go off somewhere and have a chance. I mean, is it a matter possible. of a historic record that she went on progress, oh, or yes. is this speculation? Oh, yes, absolutely. No, she did. There's a historical record that matches with the time, the time she, was she had a child, yes. But, again... Being careful, I can't say I can yeah, prove that. Yeah, none of this is in stone. These mm-hmm. are, at this point, beyond speculation, only in that certain of your codes do mm-hmm. seem to match up with certain mm-hmm. historical evidence. Yeah, that's the point. Yeah. And when the codes are literally redundant, here, 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 then you have a map for saying, well, Whoever wrote these codes is trying to tell us something and then making sure we get the message yes. very loud and clear. And the codes are not just random things. If, no, if, if you watch, watch the your show, series, you'll, you'll see, see exactly. They're very, very, very specific. specific. So now the queen has gone on progression, but somehow it seems the renderings of it are that she and Devere are sort of pushed apart. They did not marry. No, they didn't. And that's this, this is the but tragic they, they story. They seem to love each other. Or she loved I him. Am fair, I am absolutely convinced that this was a deep love affair. She was trapped by her job. Right. She's got to be, first of all, she has stated that she will never marry because she doesn't want to get married. Mm-hmm. Married meant, oh, now we'll take it from here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Don't you go to the kitchen. One, yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. She so wanted she to express herself. Right. Yes. But besides that, there's, well, um, Devere makes a point of writing a beautiful public letter to her. He has his page announce it during the tilts, uh, the tilt chart. Remember, he was 21 years old when he first comes into her life, or at least when she, he's, he's first right. jousting and right. sword fencing. And, right. and she's looking at him going, well, he's a darn good dancer. He's a very nice poet. And he's brilliant. Oh, he's pretty brilliant, brilliant at that writer. too. So obviously he was hated, of course. Right. Right? Right. That's clear. Yeah. Right. And he wins everything. Right. So even worse. Right. Right. So 10 years later in 1581, he's back to defend his his title, as it were. This is the one part that Roland did not get in the movie. And I wish he had because it's the most oh beautiful scene Tell imaginable. Us. I want to hear it. Well, this is a historical record. Yes. The tilts, 620 yards long. All the knights are wanting to beat him. Right. This time because hmm, you don't like him. There's the green knight, the black knight, red knight, yellow knight. He shows up everyone. They're all all at one end, but he's the champion, so he has the privilege of coming from the other end. Overnight, he has his his people decorate a large bay tree at this end of the uh, the tilt yard, covered in gold. Not painted gold, covered in gold leaf. He's very rich, remember. And they cover the trunk and the branches and the leaves in gold leaf. And he comes out. At, the, at sunrise, out of this gold-colored tent on a gold-caparisoned horse holding a golden lance, dressed in gold armor with a gold, I mean, everything gold. He's this saying, is a historical record. Oh, this is a historical record. Yeah. And he's saying, what is he saying? He's saying, he's Muhammad Ali. Yeah, right. He's, he's saying, I am the I greatest. Am. Yes. You want a piece of me? I mean, you don't do that if you're a little nervous about how it's going to go. And he's confident, it seems. He comes out and goes, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then they have 12 bouts and he wins every single one for his queen. He he has his page come out and read a document to her, something he wrote 
before her called the night of the tree of the sun. And he says, this tree, this golden shining tree that I'm emerging from is, is emblematic of our family tree. Oh, it's heavy. Oh, and he's saying he is the root of the tree and she is the vestal virgin at the top of the tree. He's, te- he's telling oh. the world that they, he's her child yes. and her love. Yes. Either romantic or pure, noble love of a courtier poet for his monarch. It's utterly beautiful. It's a brilliant piece of theatre. It's Shakespeare in the part before there was a Shakespeare in the part. I'm surprised that out. That's amazing. Oh, then Roland should have had that in. Yeah, he should have. Yeah. Brilliant, brilliant. Okay. I mean, the idea that I, okay. I am the greatest. So he comes out and says that. And it, but the bottom line is he's saying to the world and to her, I understand that you have to be the Vestal Virgin. He actually uses the expression Vestal Virgin. You have to be the Virgin Queen. Why? Because you are being courted by all these, you know, you're the most eligible woman in the world, yes. on the planet, and France wants to marry you, and Rome wants to marry you, and blah, 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 blah. They all come over. Well, she plays it like, oh, yes, it's not, there's no Instagram, right? It's like, oh, send, paint me a portrait of yourself, and I'll see if I fancy you. And like a year and a half later, they send over the ships and a portrait. Nah, I don't think so. She's using her virginity as bait because so long as she's available, she might marry one of them right. and they can avoid war. Right, exactly. Install a king. Makes perfect sense. You're but sure. So long as she does, and she's doing this all along. All the while, John Dee behind the scenes is saying, keep this going, keep it going. We've got to build up our armaments because the Spanish Armada is going to come eventually when you're no longer of childbirthing age, mm-hmm. by the way. So, so position you well know, this is only going to last for a certain while. And that's what she's doing. But Devere is saying in this message, I understand you need to be a virgin queen for them. And I understand, therefore, that our love cannot be acknowledged and our child cannot be acknowledged. But I love you. Did he know that she was mum at the time? Oh, yeah. He knew. Okay, so it's, it appears they may, they may have both been in the know. Okay. There are hints in the sun as well. There are hints, yes. So now we get to Shakespeare. <laughs> Shakespeare, who in the, certainly in the film, is portrayed as an absolute buffoon who can't even write. Yeah. But So he, he's a fellow in, in Stratford. Why is De Vere trying to get these plays that we all know from our school days? Why is he trying to get these out through this person that ultimately was named William Shakespeare, his nom de plume? Why was he trying to get this information out to the public at all? There is a distinction. Uh, The man born in Stratford was uh, baptized Shakespeare. Shacks, okay. It's a minor distinction, but it is important because yes. the name was common, but it was never ever spelt with an E. Okay. And it was never ever hyphenated. Right. A lot of Shakespeare stuff was hyphenated. Shakespeare, yeah. as in, uh-huh. you know, mm-hmm. basically yes. Minerva coming out of Zeus's head, shaking a spear. Yeah. The, the goddess of art and all that. So it's, it's a metaphor. He happens to have a convenient name, but who knows, maybe even that was fixed. I wouldn't be surprised right. at this point. But definitely his baptism was fixed can, can i could just give you a few numbers that will help us to understand it yes angels in 1584 channel a document a sacred document to dr john d he, yes. he liked to do seances he liked to talk now, to john, angels. john d was the queen's personal astrologer but he was yeah. he was much more he talked to angels he was a mathematician he was a mystic great yeah. mystic of the day Thank you for catching up on that because we hadn't mentioned him. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, we have to get <laughs> and, him in there because yeah. it's key to you. So John D is literally that, and he's the Queen's astrologer, and he's um, one of her leading advisors as far as psychic phenomena can say. He's 007, for God's sake. Yes. 
Right, he's, he's a spy in Europe, <laughs> and that's his code number. Ian Fleming knew this and yes. built James Double Bond on, seven it. on it. Yes. So he's all—he's a magnificent character. Once you get to understand him, the kids are going to love this. After Dumbledore, he's the next one. Oh. <laughs> John yeah. D is a real wizard. Yes. But he's ha- he's having a séance with angels, and the angels dictate this message to him, and it is brought through as a sacred document, and it has six hundred and twenty-four squares in it, and six hundred and twenty-four characters, and it's it's delivered on. June 24, 624. 20 years later, to the day, Edward de Vere, one of the Shakespeare's, and I say one of because Bacon's part of it as well. Yes. One of, he's Edward de Vere. He supposedly dies on June 24, 624. 20 years prior, the man we're told was Shakespeare, Shakespeare of Stratford. He's supposedly baptized on April 26, 426. Exact opposite mm-hmm. of 624. The Shakespeare sonnets dedication is six lines, two lines, and four lines. And when you count the six words, second, four, six, through to the end, it reveals a cipher. It says these sonnets all by Evere. Evere, a contraction of the name Edward de Vere. Oh, Edward de Vere is six letters, two letters, four letters. He's also the Earl of Oxford, which is four, yes. two, six, right? In the church where supposedly the fake Shakespeare is buried, there's a, a monument that has Freemasonic symbols on it and Hebrew codes. And it's in a pattern of six to four or four to six this way. And that's where really you're put, able to put the pieces together. Well, when when they watch your together. show, they're going to see how carefully yeah. you put them all together. So, so, oh, so the know. question is, who was D to Devere? Cryptographer. He was. Um, so when De Vere was writing, mm, and he was writing in an encrypted fashion, right? Mm. Well, they would, have had to have com- they would have had to have combined on certain aspects. Because the, the cryptography involves, you know, like your page of, you've got a page of text right. on it, right? right. You've got to be able to put it into a grid, which means just put all the letters, mm-hmm. one after the other, like this, and they reveal vertically messages. That's mm-hmm. all. So mm-hmm. in its simplest form. It's a bit deeper than that, but... Mm-hmm. Simplest form. So they would have collaborated. They would have collaborated on integral things that involved wording in a sonnet or wording in some of the plays. So there's no doubt that they collaborated in that sense. Right. But Dee is not known as a poet at all. He wrote right, right. some poetry that was bad, right. um, but he was the most brilliant mathematician of the time right. and, and cryptographer of the time. And he passed the mantle on to, to he was the leading, he was the grandmaster of the Rosicrucians, and he passed that mantle on to Francis Bacon, who later is pretty much known by the Rosicrucian fraternity and the Freemasons as being their, their, their guy, you know, of the right. time. Well, and the Hermetics so, also acknowledge Bacon as one of the Shakespeare's. Of Absolutely. So we can assume that that yeah. story is not, this doesn't debunk that story. No, it, it brings it in another author in a very intimate way. Yeah. And so why, again, I, what I wonder is, because it was so dangerous in the day, yeah. why would this information need to, why did De Vere even want his plays mm. to be passed through Shakespeare and presented before the public? What was the advantage? Was it, it wasn't just sheerly entertainment. It was telling stories that had some meaning personally to he and Elizabeth and Deb. Yeah. First of all, he couldn't help writing. He's a great artist, right? Mm-hmm. He's 
Yeah, yeah you couldn't stand and like so. all great art. It it will meet you on whatever level you can receive it at. Right. Mm-hmm. So I might see this a Titian painting and go, oh, that's beautiful, but I might not know the symbology in it or the geometry in it. It's the same with every, everybody, right? That does great art. So he's he's writing it on multiple levels. So it's just fine if you want entertainment and swashbuckling and. Lots and lots of writers have written all this up. We know Shakespeare mm-hmm. deep on that level. Yes. He's the greatest writer ever, whether you like him or not, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. It's damn yeah. good stuff. Yeah, right. it's good stuff. Get into it. Hey, you have to read it in junior high, so <laughs> it but, has to have some storyline, <laughs> emotions. Yeah, and something it really naughty. contains all the beauty and all the horror and yes. everything imaginable that happens on Earth. Yes. But at the same time... There's this deepest, deepest spiritual message that is coming through, which only comes through. Well, it doesn't only. You can read the spiritual message in the, in the works, but in the codes, he is literally saying, I am that I am. The name of God that is forbidden by King James, right? So the law in 1606, law of abuses. Can't say anything, God. Okay, why? <laughs> I can't do it. In Sonic 121, he just says, no, I am and I am. And they, I mean, he should have been hung, drawn and quartered several times for that. Yes. But yes. he just says it. And, and as I show in the, in the series, it's everywhere in the beginning and end of all his works and in the middle. He's obviously got a very, very clear notion of wanting to give a, a straightforward message. And the message is that, that name of God, the I am. He's saying it's you. I am an enlightened being, he's saying. I mean, he has to be. He's 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 up there, right? Yes. So is D. Yes, indeed. So is Bacon. Yes. They're all whatever level that is. Whatever you Mm -hmm. know. Yes, Elizabeth. They're all here on this other level to to deliver. It's a scripture. I just I can only refer to it as a scripture. Yes. But but different from any other scripture where they tell you to believe by faith. Kingdom of God is within you, as all scriptures say, and all that. That's fine. It's wonderful. But he's now in a new age, and he adds mathematics to it. He hides on the surface of the poetry, like on the cover of the sonnets. It's pointing to the great pyramid of Giza. God's sake, what's that doing? You know, he's telling you history's a lot more mysterious than you think. There's deep knowledge hidden here, and we were helped by greater beings to build these monuments. He's saying that. But the overall thing that I love most of all is he comes to the end, and he's saying it's much misunderstood. To be or, or not, not to, to be. What does it mean? It's the most well-known line in all of literature. And he's really saying, you can be or not be who you truly are. You can keep on wearing this mask. I love drama. All the world's a stage. All the men, right? Yes. I love it. Yes. Don't get me wrong. You can be that. And we can keep on wearing these masks and play every role we want to forever. That's creation. Or... And take the mask off and be who we truly are. The I am. That's his ultimate message. Yes. And it's, a, it's very compelling. It's very compelling. And I just, I can't help but look at it cyclically. Where there are mm. periods of history where the doors are open, so to speak, for information yeah. to begin flowing forward. And then, I mean, going as far back to Lemuria, Atlantis, Egypt, ancient Egypt, yeah. forward, Greece, Rome, you know, now here. And so I can't help think about the characters whose destiny has always been to reinforce or help humanity remember these 
critical messages at the time the door is open and they reincarnate. Yeah. That's what I was, I, I don't mean to say anything to you and I'm not supposing anything or anyone, but when people come through with such unique talents and skills with such a unique message, I can't help but think they're here again and they keep coming at, a, at the right time. Do you feel that what well, you've done is here at the right time? Yes, definitely. There is a timing to it that is clear. You see it everywhere, right? All the openings yes. of... And so your part of the message is, is there, I am that I am, mm, right? To be or not to be. It's accepting it, you see. Yes. What I came to, what I started with earlier. I'd done this whole, almost another incarnation, it feels to me, like these five record yes. labels and going, look at me, you know. Just getting your and wings, going, playing with power. Silly talent. pop songs, right? Yeah. You know, and then I went to, oh, don't even express anything. You're just a... Less than a speck on his table, right? And I I swear, it took me a long time to get comfortable with it because I had still this block of, oh, you must be humble. But I finally did recognize that, of course, um, we we all have our journey and our our mission, it's a big word, our own purpose in, in, in coming here. And I know it was my purpose. I understood. I was shown it various ways. But I had to get over this idea, oh, I don't want to become this this, you know, razzle-dazzle But why did I learn how to razzle-dazzle? You see, why was I, why was I given that opportunity? I think to have the strength of character for when the time came to, to deliver the message you really exactly. came here to do. And we are all yes, there. We are. It's the same for all lovers. Yes. And being able to say it and own it gives, I believe, other people permission to, to recognize and go, yeah, you know, he's talking about, yeah, I have that feeling sometimes, but I can't talk about it in case what will the friends say and then my neighbors and my family. Well, sure. It's natural. That is more real than our everyday life no, here that we're going. One how about fin- the Lakers? Yes. Yeah, about the Lakers. <laughs> so one final question then. Why do you think that that message, I am mm. that I am, or to be or not to be, mm. why do you think it was so important that that message couldn't be said expressly in the day? Why did it have to be buried? You couldn't. Church. Oh, we'll, we'll take care of that. You, you, no, no, you, you can't even have have the mass in English. You know, keep it in Latin right. so you don't really understand it. <laughs> We're in charge. Keep donating to us. That's uh, kind we, of a rhetorical uh, question. You can't but exactly. talk to angels. No, yeah. no, no. That's our provenance, right? Yeah. Whilst we're doing unspeakable things in the name of religion. Yes. So we're at we're about to explode out of that old. I'm not criticizing anyone's faith who has a sincere, deep belief in their religion, right? But all of the various religions, really some of the great masters of our time have all come to tell us it's all one. It's all one. It's all We're just trying same. to let go of the dogmas of control. So why at that time? It was the time, it was the time because we, it, the tremendous oppression. Hey, burning people at the stake. Yeah. 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 You know, of course so we have to get The message is... I am that I am, or a choice to be you truly, the mm-hmm. true you, or not to be, to wear the mask. Or to wear the mask and be good at it. It's not even judging the first one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because he's saying, you know, an interesting thing about this, I only realized about a few days ago. Mm-hmm. He says, all the world is a stage and all the men and women merely players. They have our exits and our entrances. And I thought, why did, did he get out the wrong way around? It should be we have our entrances and our exits, right, on stage. Now, oh, they came in, they went out. He says exits and entrances. He never did anything by mistake. Yes. Exiting to get onto the stage. Oh, we have our exits from the divine yes. to come. And now we have our exits to go back home. Mm-hmm. 
Well, pretty, well our entrance is back home. Pretty brilliant. It, absolutely brilliant. <laughs> and you're such a wonderful storyteller and i mean just natural bard but also it's the your abilities that i feel you have brought through so i want to say um thank you for coming back metaphorically mm. and and figuratively both <laughs> <laughs> thank you for coming back and laying this out for us because as mm. we said in the beginning truth actually does matter this is mm. we're at a time where yes it does matter who wrote these things it does matter that we're not having things passed off and yeah. of something one-dimensional and entertaining when actually there's beauty in it that we need to be reminded of now because then we can understand it even more when you yes. know the life of the person who did the writing it all comes to like technicolor in wizard of oz it's like moment of just oh because we don't know anything about shakespeare and they teach in school don't bother about that uh, we have the works it doesn't matter yeah. when you actually tie the life to the works, you realize oh that's that that's he's right all writers write about their own personal experience mm-hmm. right and it comes to life and then you can go oh i have this much more comprehensive view of Oh, and that's referring to that. It becomes immensely more interesting. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Let me ask you, was it De Vere that wrote Romeo and Juliet? Is that the belief rather than Bacon or someone else? I don't know. I can't, we don't again, really I can't know. say exactly who wrote what. I, I, my, my, you know, look, if I were a betting person, I'd say it's De Vere. But when I get to the astral and find out for sure, I'll let, us let know. you know. Or, or if you get there first, let me know. Honestly, I don't care. Yeah, just one. It was just a I curiosity. Don't I think it's severe. I think Bacon is so much towards the cryptographic stuff. Okay. Uh, but that's, and that's also borne out by the codes that repeat his name over and over. But really, honestly, I say I say now, look, I'm a, a non-Fordian, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> Got it. I don't care. I just want the truth because the world deserves the truth. Yes. And these people, whoever they were collectively, they all put they put a lot of effort into telling us this. And getting us a, a new kind of scripture that is interesting. Mathematics is provable. You know, you, 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 math is provable. Poetry isn't. You can't prove anything with poetry. As beautiful as it is, you can't prove. Can you prove that's beautiful? No, I Can agree you prove with you. love? No, you can't. That's mystic. Right. The other side is a balance of left and right brain. It has to be. It's alchemy, the pure balance of both. Yes. And that's what he's telling us. And that's why he hid the math in it as well. Yeah. Alan, what an absolutely, just not just scintillating story, but useful story for our own development. And again, I say thank you. Thank you for the series you've done. And thank you for coming on with me so I could just get wrapped into the story with you myself. Okay, you can watch the details of the code Alan has discovered on his series with Gaia called Shakespeare Decoded. You've already heard a little bit of what's going on there. It's very meaty and very intriguing. Until next time, thank you for joining us here on Open Minds. Oh, my. Okay. Well, we're going to do just a little short thing. We're going to read Aurora Ray's written message to us from Thanksgiving Day. Believe in yourself. Believe in each other. The task is monumental. Yet together, we will rise to meet it. We were made for these times. Let us step forward and usher in the new era that awaits. The time for action is now. This is a pivotal moment for humanity. The ascension of Gaia represents an opportunity for each of us to step forward and serve something greater than ourselves. Though 
the coming changes may seem daunting, we must embrace this transition with courage, compassion, and readiness to act. The call has sounded. How will you respond? There's, there are countless ways we can be of service by uplifting others, safeguarding our communities, healing divisions, and spreading light. Every act of goodness and generosity is needed. Every loving heart and helping hand is required. Do not hesitate. The time is now. We are being called to come together as brothers and sisters, as caretakers and stewards. We must set aside fear and doubt and step forward with faith, purpose, and solidarity. There is a role only you can play. Listen closely. Find the unique way your gifts and talents are needed. Then, comment, commit fully, without holding back. The work ahead will require perseverance, sacrifice, and your very best. Know that your efforts matter. Each contribution, however small, pushes us forward. We stand at a crossroads, faced with a choice. Will we answer the call and take a courageous leap into the light? Or will we languish in darkness and division? Our future hangs in the balance. Believe in yourself. Believe in each other. The task is monumental. Again, yet together, we will rise to meet it. We were made for these times. Let us step forward and usher in the new era that awaits. The time for actions now. Each field of endeavor. At this exciting time, opportunities abound to step forward and assist Gaia in every field of human endeavor. Whether your calling is in spirituality, science, technology, medicine, art, music, business, law, education, or any other pursuit, your talents are your talents are needed. Apart from spirituality, the arts in particular play a key role. Creative expressions through painting, dance, film, poetry, and more can capture the imagination and inspire humanity toward the light. Scientists, too, have a vital part in their research and discoveries, pushing knowledge and innovation ever forward. Teachers pass wisdom to the next generation. Doctors heal and leaders guide. Whenever your skills lie, wherever they lie, this is the time to hone them, offer your gifts. The ascension needs all of us, each contributing in our own way with passion and purpose. Even small acts of kindness can ripple out as waves of light. By coming together, we can uplift the collective, the collective vibration and realize our shared divine nature. Have faith that your unique abilities are needed. 
follow your heart, listen to your soul's purpose, and take courageous steps toward the new earth. For family and loved ones, during this exciting time of transformation, it is understandable to have concern for the well-being of your family and loved ones. However, rest assured that this, this earth will remain a safe place for all of humanity. Okay, it's getting late. Uh, uh, while the plan is just two more minutes. While the planet is ascending to a higher vibration, this process need not be feared. The earth herself is purified and releasing the lower vibrations that no longer serve, yet the physical planet will persist as humanity's home. Your children and grandchildren will, conti will continue to have a place to live, to grow, to thrive there. Your family relationships are so important. Now, more than ever, as sources of strength, comfort, and community, during the changes underway, although the world may look forward in many ways, the love you share and the, and the bonds you have built will endure. Your homes will still provide shelter. Your cities and towns will still be gathering places. The earth will continue to nourish you as she, as, as she has since the beginning of human civilization. Have faith that the ascension of Gaia will not undo the human family or your most cherished connections with trust, coverage, and care for one another. You will move forward into this new era together. Conclusion. The time is now to reflect deeply on our inner unique gifts and find how they may assist Gaia and, con and contribute to humanity's shared growth. This transition, while monumental, need not be frightening as we stay focused on unity, love, and supporting each other through the changes ahead. We are all one family. We are all shards of the divine as we are mindful of this truth we can traverse the coming shifts with grace courage and peace in our hearts we love you dearly we are here with you and we are your family of light we are the galactic federation a whole aurora ray and satnam satnam deed 13 thank yous hunting the heart no evil live long and prosper we'll see you this afternoon and we'll do this again. Thank you, Rainbird. Did you say your piece? I passed the talking stick. All righty. What can I say? <laughs> yeah, well, and thank you for playing that. I, I don't know if you played it before. It's just another version, uh, continuation, but I love that. I love that. Al, Alan Green had a series of 10, and we played them a while ago. And mm -hmm. so he, he just come back to top it off. Boy, what a perfect night for that. <laughs> Thank you, Mary. Oh, yeah. awesome. So All righty. So, again, we'll see us all again this afternoon. And aloha, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, BBS Radio. Namaste, everyone. <laughs>